0: What that is? Everything. Anglo thieves. Gettle's gone? Oh my god, you people have just failed me, failed me utterly. Congratulations, Scotland, we have just gone
1: full so the That just explains so much of my childhood to me. For research purposes?
2: It's super important. I hear an awful lot of judgment in your voice. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the third anniversary of Anglo-Fees. It is episode 37, and since it's an anniversary episode, we are joined by the lovely Cleolinda Jones. Hey, guys! Well, she... that's higher than usual. <laughs> she does recognize a cue <laughs> she hears one. And we're here to talk about Crimson Peak and Gothic Romance, but mostly Crimson Peak. Hi, I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. And I'm Kaylee. And we are all of Guillermo del Toro's fangirls. It's his world, we just squee in it.
3: Honestly, I thought you were about to say we're all Guillermo del
1: Toro's bitches. Like, I was waiting for you. Almost said that almost said that i'm glad i'm glad there was the restraint i'm i'm happy <laughs> it's a good time
2: yeah so we all saw crimson peak and you should too but judging by the box
3: office you didn't shame on you
2: shame Oh, was so good it was so pretty it's not nearly as scary as the marketing made it out to be, which made me really happy. There were still parts that I was watching through my fingers.
1: Oh, yeah, that was me too. Yeah,
2: me too. I, don't, I don't do horror well.
1: <laughs> I kind of did, but I, I started laughing like very quietly. I didn't want anybody to hear me. I started giggling through all of the, the creepy crawly ghosts, not because they were badly done, but because I was so happy. I was so happy that this was what was happening and I was watching it and I just beamed through the entire movie. Which is also what I did during Jane Eyre. Carrie Fukunagas with with Mia. Once again. Mm-hmm. I I haven't been this happy since like that movie three or four years ago. I
2: I have tried to watch that movie a couple of times and I fell fallen asleep at the same point.
1: What point was that?
2: I don't even remember.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, that's I just make it about half an hour in and then I wake up and the movie's over. <laughs> That's my favorite book, and again, this is one of those things that happened to me when I was thirteen, and you know that was like a huge age for me for some reason, and and so I think there there are a lot of hesitate to use the word problematic, but that's basically what it is. There there are some really problematic things in that book that I realized as I got older. Like I knew at the time, but like now there's really some stuff, and so it, it's weird to be like that's my favorite book, but it is, and and that movie was such a wonderful. Fleet footed adaptation of it that I am just, I was so happy with that. So I'm kind of like, I will follow Mia Wazakowska anywhere she wants to go at this point.
3: I would say even Fastbender works for me in the Jane Eyre movie just because, well, Rochester's kind of an unlikable asshole anyway, so it's fine if he's played by one.
1: (laughs) I do enjoy the scene where he says, you know, there's this whole thing about how Rochester's not handsome. And she's all like, no, you're not. And like, he kind of looks offended. I'm like, yeah, because he knows he is. There you go. <laughs> that That is definitely one major departure from. But Alina, was I talking with you about how we would want to compare these two after we, we saw it? Like the filmmaking? I was talking with one of you guys about that. Not sure. I, I know it's
3: come up before. There was kind of just two days of mixed up squeeing
1: (laughs) yeah the the one thing I was I mean other than the the speech they borrowed I was there are these shots in Jane Eyre where they use like candlelight and doors and it's like Mia's face is like this crescent moon with clouds passing over it almost like just shadows and I was waiting for them to do a shot like that in Crimson Peak and then they did and that just made me weirdly happy.
3: Would, would that be the shot in Jane Eyre after the failed wedding when they're just in the dark and there's one candle? They meet in the corridor and then in the sitting room and he's.
1: I was specifically. I mean, they do it a number of times, but I was specifically thinking of when she's alone in that room with. What's his name who's been stabbed? Mason. And, you know, she's kind of, you know, leaning in and. Just in the hallways and like just the way the light kind of the shadows pass over her face, you know. Which is funny because they used a lot of natural candlelight and firelight and and Crimson Peak is like the opposite of natural in the Mm -hmm. best way possible.
3: Crimson Peak is all of our gothic tropes come to life.
1: And they they stole. We were talking about this earlier. They Guillermo del Toro stole the, the guy from Dracula, the t- production designer. <laughs> that explains so much to me, <laughs> right? Like the reds and the blues and the, the teal greens and the house that's like a character. And...
0: Oh, the, the house.
1: <laughs> I in terms live of in purely,
0: it. in terms of purely visceral, lurid very vivid colored gothic romance. I really feel like this is the first one that's accomplished it in a mainstream Hollywood level since Bram Stoker's Dracula. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that it wears this influence of, on its very big puffy sleeves.
3: <laughs> what I noticed most about the gowns was uh, that there's this motif of black moths eating butterflies and the butterflies you see are yellow. They're kind of like monarchs. And mm-hmm. Edith's gowns are all yellow, and Jessica's gowns are all black. And I was like, subtle, this movie is not, but it's so good. No, <laughs> there,
2: there's nothing subtle about it.
3: Not that it's meant to be.
1: <laughs> no. Which is also true of Dracula. I mean, they they talked about it, Coppola talked about it being pitched like an opera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? And so they, that, that totally makes sense to me now that they would, Del Toro would, like, go for that kind of visual style. He'd be like, no. You made the movie, I want. I'm taking your production designer. That's how we're doing this.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's no gecko gowns in this
1: one. Well, Aiko Ishioka <laughs> has since passed away, or he might have right. gotten her, quite honestly. right.
3: <laughs> and and luckily no miscast Keanu Reeves wandering around. <laughs> Instead we get Charlie hum- Hunnam. Charlie Hunnam,
2: just Golden retriever in around. Yeah,
3: he's perfectly cast for being the Golden Retriever. <laughs>
2: It's because he is a golden retriever.
3: <laughs> Let's talk about the cast. Uh, do we? Is there any casting that any of you felt didn't work?
2: No, I mean there aren't that many people in this movie.
3: I was gonna say, aside <laughs> like once you get out of America, you know, and Edie married and they go to this mansion, it's really just it's a very empty and claustrophobic kind of just three people.
1: Mm -hmm. You could almost do it as a play. I mean, you Mm -hmm. could almost do it as a stage. God, that'd be an amazing set. (laughs) Right. But weren't we talking about, because I I didn't know this until somebody brought it up, that originally it was going to be Cumberbatch and Emma Stone. (laughs) Yeah. And after they left very early on, they sat down, Del Toro sat down and like kind of worked out the characters with the actors. So I kept going, Oh my God, Tom Hilston is so perfect for this. No, it was because he had input into what the character was like. It was like literally tailored Mm -hmm. like a suit for him. And so it's almost impossible for the characters. It's almost impossible for them to be badly cast because so much of each actor is in it. Right. Right. I'm concerned about Jessica Chastain now. (laughs) When I think about
3: um, Tom Hilston's character, his name is Thomas Sharp. So, for anybody who maybe haven't seen the movie like yeah, don't okay, get there's
2: Tom and there's Thomas, Thomas and they're two right. different people. So, maybe. Um,
3: Thomas, who is, you know, ultimately not like at the end of the spoilers, spoilers live in these woods. You will be eaten by spoilers. Thomas is ultimately not a good, you know, like he's complicit in a lot of murders, and yet when the movie was over, I still kind of almost felt about him as if he were a good guy. And I, and that's Tom Hiddleston. It's what he brings to Loki. It's what he brings, the vulnerability and sincerity he brings to his characters. And regardless of what they have done with the character, if this was Benedict Cumberbatch, I would not have felt that way about him.
0: I mean, it's the Byronic hero trope, mm-hmm. and it can be really hard to play that and get the balance between sort of the mystery the darkness and the sympathy and you can get it right yeah and particularly for a project like this where the emotions are so heightened so I think that Hiddleston is a very smart piece of casting on that front and not just because I personally think that Cumberbatch should be thrown into fire you know
1: <laughs> well I think Hiddleston brings his characters pre-woobied and <laughs> <laughs> it's those eyes There's a sweetness that I think Thomas has to have that you have to be able to believe that from from the word go, that he genuinely does care about Edith. He's genuinely interested in her, genuinely cares about her, is completely torn between her and his sister. But like it makes Edith look less, I don't want to say less stupid, but there are so many red flags that this guy shows up, needs money takes one look at a paragraph of her novel and is like, your writing is so good. I'm like, he didn't read that, Edith. He's been here five seconds. (laughs) Like, he did. (laughs) But the fact that there's probably this very sincere attraction between them, you understand how she, why she would go with it. Being kind of naive and innocent, if that sweetness had not been there, it would make her look like a complete idiot. Right. But you can kind of get how with her father dying, you know you can get how she was swept into this and how he probably really did sincerely care for her
2: in his way as moment... much as he could yeah
1: in the end that was my kind of fridge logic
3: moment when um at the at the denouement of the movie when he's trying to talk uh, his sister Lucille played by Jessica Chastain down from her murderous rage and he, there's a slip of the tongue where he goes, "We can all still be together. We can go." Away. And she goes, "All oh, like you, you want, you still want her?" But I'm sitting there going, "Thomas, you, you really think Edith will stay with you after this? Like, because he's so used. He has, after all, spent his life living in a kind of delusion, mm-hmm. or a do, I guess. And he's still in it, and he's trying to make it work in his head where." Where he can just bring anything to the world because he wants her in it. So you can see that he knows he sincerely loves her and wants her in his world. He just, at this point, doesn't realize that his world can no longer exist.
1: See, you know, speaking of fully idea. I, I kind of wondered, like, okay, I think at that point Lucille thinks that Alan is dead and they fake that. But Thomas knows he's not, and I was like, "We can all go together." Is it that kind of party? Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's always that kind of party. Like, this is this is an open-minded guy. You know, we could all be happy. The guy who was gonna go run tell on us, we'll just take him with us, and right.
2: Or the simplest explanation is he was just trying to talk her down enough so that. Somebody can get out of here alive.
1: I mean, probably. But what What I love about that scene, I, I don't know why I didn't expect Jessica Chastain to be so good. I know she's a great actress. I just, I think I was not initially very interested in the idea of the character. I was way more interested in Edith and Thomas. So I was surprised when Jessica Chastain kind of ran off with the movie. But, like, when she just loses her entire shit and starts stabbing him... <laughs> Oh, my God. That was just... Not the face. Not the <laughs> face. <laughs> like, I knew every... In this kind of story, in Gothic romance, you have to die for your sins. Like, yep. that's going to happen. But I thought maybe she would wound him and he would end up kind of sacrificing himself to save Edith. Or, like, he would slowly bleed out as, as she escaped. I didn't expect him to get just fucking stabbed in the face. And just fall over. I did not expect that. Right. And at that point, it was it was seriously just a nightgown knife fight duel between these two women, which I did not expect.
2: Yeah, I. The only point at which I did literally say, "Oh, for fuck's sake, Guillermo," <laughs> was when he was pulling the knife out of his face, and I was just like, "Okay." I, Ooh, for the fuck's say, oh, the noise that made.
3: Honestly, if this were. A novel I was reading, I would expect it to end with, like, and the authorities went into the house and never found the bodies. And you <laughs> never know.
1: I was entirely expecting a fall of the House of Usher ending, where Crimson Peak would collapse, the entire house would go down in a bloody smoosh of clay. I was genuinely surprised when that did not happen. Yeah. Like I felt like they were even setting that up with the house collapsing in the clay. I really felt like they were.
3: They're digging right under the house. There's no foundation. They're literally digging
2: right. it out. <laughs> that that was that was the the biggest point of suspension of disbelief for me was that Edith, who is the daughter of a builder, did not walk into this house and go, "Wait, wait a second. The mine is direct. The mine. Where you're drinking squishy shit." is directly under the house and this house is also Thomas you have no roof and you can't even afford a fucking tarp
1: uh. where were the leaves coming from uh-uh. where were the dead <laughs> leaves coming from there were no trees
0: it was also just really pretty snow occasionally when it wasn't actually snowing as well the entire ecosystem of that house
1: was separate right.
0: from the rest of the moors
1: I love it I want to live in it I want to live there forever I love it <laughs> Where did the leaves even come from? Who fucking I feel, cares? I
0: feel like this movie was made at least 80% because Guillermo del Toro wanted to build his dream house and his wife has only got certain limits. <laughs> no, Guillermo,
2: there needs to be a roof. You, but No, we're not going to have blood running out of the walls.
0: Not this time. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I know
3: I promised to bring structure to the proceedings, but there's a plot thing that's kind of been bothering me, and I think maybe if we, if I read the novelization, it might get answered. But here's, um, and this is for viewers who maybe haven't seen it, but and just want us to describe it. But the background mystery that unfolds turns out that so Thomas and Lucille Sharp, they're impoverished aristocrats, they need money, and they achieve it by marrying Thomas off to wealthy, isolated young women whom they then kill once he, you know, takes control of their property
2: Let's be fair it's Lucille who kills them
3: okay (laughs) it's
2: a little
1: ambiguous
3: (laughs) so the one before Edith was Enola which is by the way is alone backwards and I didn't realize it until I saw it on the key
1: oh Christ almighty
3: in the kitchen (laughs) when Jessica just said you left me alone (laughs) slab keys down to the table and I was like oh
1: really Mm -hmm. (laughs) really (laughs) fucking really (laughs) Really? (laughs) Because I sat there going, historically, when... I should have looked it up before now. Like, when was Enola used? Like
3: She's the only one whose name is something backwards. But there's her, and the woman that Thomas was courting before switching his affections to Edith was Eunice. So... I assumed they specifically wanted a lady E sharp because here's how I see it: when they, when Edith and Thomas arrive back home, the servants slash wor- workers, you know, they do this. He's like, "Here's my wife," and the servants like, "You've been married a while," and so, and also Edith's father objected to the marriage because there was this, you already married." So presumably nobody knows that Enola's is dead. And my feeling is in that Enola was either never in Allendale or they brought her there when she was alone and nobody's ever actually seen her. Nobody knows that she was that there was ever a detour where she was there. So but the two women before that are named Margaret and Pamela, I think. Like their names don't start with an E, so presumably people know that he was he's twice widowed.
1: Unless maybe he just never brought them at all and they were here here's my question, and this is kind of a, a plot hole possibly. Edith found the gramophone cylinders in a closet Mm -hmm. (laughs) that makes me think enola must have lived there and hidden them there right because otherwise they were pamela's they were pamela's
2: they were pamela's but enola was the one who did the the last one right and she's like they're killing me i'm gonna record this and hide this in the closet and hopefully somebody will no i think that
3: was all pamela because enola would have spoken with an italian accent so here's the way it goes the cylinders belong to the first one who I think might have been in a wheelchair but the wheelchair might have also been the mothers who had a broken leg the second one was called Margaret and I think she was the one who had the dog and Enola was the one who in photograph has the baby but it turns out the baby was Lucille's
1: man, I just then what point did
3: here's my question why are there packets per wife are they Lucille's serial killer trophies
1: Yes. Okay, she was keeping braids of hair from them. Yes, yes. She was keeping serial killer trophies.
3: Yeah. Was Thomas the one keeping the packets? Maybe. Of, like, photographs? Like, he's supposed to, if he was married to them secretly, why are there photographs of each of them? With him, in the photographs. Like, they're not very good serial killers. They're well,
2: really Thomas was them. never really in, <laughs> into it. He was... Thomas is a very weak person.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And he may have, or at least to convince them that they, that this this was a real thing, you need to go
1: through the motions. It's interesting when you realize by the end of the movie how weak he is because the fact that he's the one who's very charming and comes on to Edith very quickly. And I mean, he seems to take initiative. It's not like he's just kind of this you know, milksop little brother that you visibly see Lucille bossing around. I mean, she'll lean in and go, Thomas, do it now, do it now. Mm -hmm. And you realize she means, not ask her out, but, you know, dance with her, propose to her, do it now. But they're so subtle about that that you you feel like he's more in control than he actually is. And I think that's where a lot of the sympathy comes from you as that gradually erodes and you start to realize how thoroughly in the driver's seat Lucille is,
4: mm-hmm.
0: but that's also something that her dad seems to to recognize instantly when he calls them out with the evidence he's procured from the, his uh, private investigator. You know, he he gives the check to Lucille and says, "You know, you seem to be the the real one in charge here."
3: She's also older than him by two years. It right. should be noted that she was the older sibling who who t- took care of him. But it's in my notes I called it the corrupting power of the unholy vagina. Like, when you have the <laughs> incestuous brother-sister duo, why is it the sister that's always the the doer of evil who corrupts the brother? Is that a gothic trope?
1: Maybe, but it also basically says if the brother was the stronger one, that he basically raped his sister. And I, just being stronger, physically stronger, I think it's something they just don't want people to think about. Yeah.
3: No, I think that's I, I I kind of came to that conclusion too that it would just be too uncomfortable. You know, there'd be so many other connotations there and implications that.
1: Like just just to be to be clear, I mean you can have rape with either gender, but just in terms of assumptions people make, mm-hmm. that just gets really yeah. Let's just not think about that. So mm-hmm. right now it would be an interesting.
2: To- twist to make the younger sister make the driver of this whole thing a younger sister rather than an older sister that would be an interesting twist that I can't off the top of my head think of an example of
3: I think I've read like one manga where that was the case (laughs) so maybe Japan is more open to that
1: you want to have a really disturbing fridge logic moment because I had this moment I think Del Toro talked about the sex scene and wanting to have Edith kind of be in control and finding some sexual agency and it not being like let's punish her for enjoying her sexuality that's like the positive part of their relationship. Mm-hmm. But when I watched it it looked to me like Thomas kind of rolls over and puts her on top. Yep. And somebody said, "Oh, like a Victorian virgin's going to know how to do that." And I was like, "Well, Thomas did that." And the only other girl he's ever been with is his sister. And his sister's really domineering and aggressive. And oh my God, he learned that position from his sister. <laughs> oh, shit.
0: <laughs> well, way to um, slightly spoil a moment of really fascinating female sexual agency in a Gothic romance. <laughs> because the, the, the trope that um, that Edith is sort of embodying is the traditional... You know, innocent but spirited virginal maiden of like the castle of Otranto and things like that.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: But she's so good. I really love Edith.
3: <laughs> Mia Vysikowska is wonderful. And I love that when the spirited parts come through in her first scene, <clears throat> no, not the character's first scene because uh, first the character's shown as a 10-year-old girl, I think. Yeah. But then when it's actually Mia Vysikowska and she runs into Charlie Hunnam's character's mother who's being very snobby and snooty and making these barbs about how, oh, you want to be Jane Austen and die a spinster, and she has the best line where she goes, I'd rather be Mary Shelley and die a widow.
4: Burn! (laughs)
3: Boom! (laughs) You know, considering that that woman knows that her son is sweet on Edith, there's almost kind of a veiled threat
4: there.
1: I love how she didn't even say, like, I'd rather be Charlotte Bronte and, and die a spinster. No, it was like, Your son is dead. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. (laughs) You know, there's something I think the movie kind of does Edith a really huge favor in making... People kept talking about how the movie was predictable. I don't think it was so much predictability as it was clarity because they make it really apparent very early on, you know, Lucille whispering, you know, do it, do it now. I I earned this ring. I want that ring back. You're like, oh god. Well, then they're not planning on her being married very long, are they? They're gonna kill her. You know, I earned this ring, girl. You done a murder then, because oh my god. So because you and you immediately go, oh, they're poisoning her. The tea's bitter. They're poisoning mm-hmm. her. What happens is instead of sitting there going, Edith, don't go in the basement. What the fuck? Why are you going in the basement? You're sitting there going, Edith, you got to get in the basement. You got to go find out what's going on. You got to get out of (laughs) here. So instead of going, why are you so stupid and going down in the basement, you're actually rooting for her to take those risks. And I, so I think the movie really does her a favor by just that slight adjustment because her actions are the same. That's what's so funny. Like, it's our perspective of her that therefore changes. I was thinking about this the other day because I went to the dentist and I, I had my teeth were great. But like six months ago, I was really terrified. I had, I was clenching my jaw. And mm-hmm. so I had this, it caused this muscle pain, but I thought my teeth were falling out. I, that's a huge phobia of mine. My teeth are just going to crumble and fall out. Oh my God. But there's this sense of until you go to the dentist, You don't have the cavities. You have them, but you don't have them until the dentist actually tells you you have them. So you don't want to go and find out that you have them. So there's this, a lot of gothic romances, I've had this sense where it's like, why couldn't you have just stayed in the marriage with the creepy guy? It was going just fine until you did the bluebeard's wife thing and you found the, why couldn't you have just, but because we already know, we've already seen the diagnosis. We know the house is full of cavities. Mm-hmm. And we want her to find this out, and there's no sense of like she made this happen. She could have just lived in happy ignorance. No, we know, and I found that so fascinating. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, we constantly see the siblings conspira- you know, cons- you know, having these plans to get rid of her. They're very open about it. It's not something that's hidden from us. There's no like big reveal moment. I think it's kind of played as a big reveal moment when you find out about the other wives. But by that point in time, if you aren't already. Up to scratch on that one. You've probably fallen asleep,
4: mm-hmm. so the we're watching reveal. it and
0: thinking, "Dear Lord, Edith, can you, you know, get down into the basement, find out what's going on, and then, you know, axe a bitch." The the big reveal is kind of. of a bitch. Bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I love that that moment is basically the "That's not a knife, that's a knife" moment. You're right. <laughs> <still>. <laughs> I heard you the first time.
3: <laughs> Sorry, little tangent, but that Edith's final line to Lucille, "I heard you the first time," that was great.
1: Oh. The big reveal is more of an anti-reveal when she says, I knew it. You're not his sister. And, you know, Lucille's like, no, but I am. But I am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 you're She's like so proud of it. Yeah. We all knew it, too. I mean, yeah. you're like, oh, sweetie. No, she is. No, but I am. <laughs> so
3: that made me think of something that was, like, hilarious of what you perceive as a modern-day audience versus what characters in a historical fiction perceive. And it reminded me um, of... There's this Golden Hollywood-era movie called Nancy Goes to Rio. And uh, at at one point, the, the main character, Nancy, is on a cruise ship. And there's basically a misunderstanding that leads to the people of the cruise ship thinking she's pregnant and abandoned. Now, as I'm watching the movie, I'm thinking, they're awfully okay by the fact that this girl has had, you know, premarital sex and has is now, you know, suffering the consequences. But no, the, it's then revealed that the people on the cruise ship just assume that she's married. I mean, she's pregnant. It must have been a husband who ran off, not just some boyfriend. And I was like, that is a generational disconnect that just happened to me there. <laughs> so with Lucille and Edith, it was like that. When, when Edith finds them and runs off crying, I'm thinking she finally gets it. And when she goes, you're not his sister. I was like, oh, Edith.
0: Oh sweetie. Honey. <laughs> for some reason I was really entertained by the fact that it's the ghost that points out to her it's like you really need to see what's going in on there. <laughs>
3: I guess it's almost and for the first time that ghost is holding a baby, which is actually the result of the incest that she's directing Edith to go find.
2: Right. Okay, can we can we can we discuss these useless ghosts for a minute? <laughs>
0: It's a story with ghosts in it. It's not a ghost story. (laughs) Okay, first off, young Edith is cowering
2: in her room with the door open. Why is the door open? Shut the door. She's not under the blanket. It is no ghost-proof blanket. And she sees the. You're just gonna roll over and turn your back. Like, what the fuck kind of child are you? What? What? I I thought the ghost-proof blanket was instinctive, but apparently not. And then the ghost of her mother is like, "Hey, don't go to Crimson Peak," which is the most useless piece of advice ever, because she doesn't find out that it's called Crimson Peak until long after. It's way too fucking late.
3: At least like at Allendale,
2: Crimson Peak. It's known by the mail po- mail the post office as Allendale Hall. Beware Thomas Sharp. Don't, yeah, don't marry
0: a dude named Thomas. Marry a puppy. But since when have any of the ghosts in any of these stories ever been anything other than hopelessly abstract? <laughs> I know. I know. I know I'm having pointless <laughs> but Thanks,
3: Mom. That was helpful.
0: That's <laughs> like, super helpful, Mom. Thanks. I feel like she didn't get under the covers because she didn't want to ruin all of her sleeves. It's probably I want true. to keep coming back to the sleeves because they're amazing. They just get bigger and bigger as it goes on. It's like, as the paranoia and hysteria of a woman in a gothic novel continues, the sleeves increase.
3: That's where she keeps them, right? Like The hair's full yeah. of secrets. <laughs>
4: <laughs> the sleeves are full of they're paranoia. They're so big because
0: they're full of secrets.
2: <laughs> 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 One time Lucille Sharp met her on a plane and told her she was pretty.
3: To go back to the Mother Ghost is that you could say that The Allendale ghosts, well, they're not, they maybe they're not actually there for Edith so much as they just exist there caught in their pain and anger. But the mother ghost was there specifically for Edith, with a warning. That was useless.
2: That was, like, like, well, if you really loved me, you'd understand what I meant. Like, come on, Mom, that's passive-aggressive bullshit, and you're dead.
1: I do find it super interesting that she was basically wearing the exact same puffy sleeve nightgown as a 10 year old and as a 20 something, because it really highlights the innocence and the, the naivete of like, she's still kind of a child on some level. Mm -hmm. It's that loss of innocence idea that you see in a lot of these romances. And I mean, I know Thomas was making it up, but when he called her a spoiled child, I mean, and they were saying, you know, her, I mean, I know on one level the publisher was saying you need a romance and that was kind of bullshit. But it was also this idea that maybe her work wasn't mature enough. And then by the end of the movie, she has written a book through her own pain and experience that was definitely mature enough. And so I I find that just super interesting.
0: But it's interesting as well as the – you know, the outfits get bigger and they're still very sort of childlike when she's in Crimson Peak. But the outfit that she wears when she dances with Thomas is oh, girl, very oh. mature. Ooh, it's yeah. beautiful mm-hmm.
1: as well, and it's covered in pearls her worldly riches and that candle.
0: Yeah. <gasps> It, How many? Stunned, it stuns me that there are people, mostly men, who have watched this film and seem really surprised that women are excited to see this. Like, where have you people been? <laughs> I mean, not just the, the Tom Hiddleston naked stuff, which we haven't even touched on yet. Not just you know the As romantic element, but the <laughs> entire idea of the, the, the feminine and the, the gothic is literally hundreds of years old. I do don't get why anyone would be shocked that
1: there are women flocking to see this for reasons other than the leading man. See, this is where you and I both break in with the the Bella Lugosi <laughs> quote. And right. Like, you do like, this take? Like, <laughs> uh, of course I don't have it pulled up now, but it's it's like you know, Gunfighters, at the OK Corral. Like, which one of us can can pull it up <laughs> faster?
3: Hint: It's in Kaylee's Bibliodays review.
1: It is. <laughs> it is women who love horror, gloat over it, feed on it, are nourished by it, shudder and cling and cry out and come back for more. I said the week this came out, this would be my ideal first date. Take me out on a date to this movie. Then we go to a bookstore and look at gothic romances. And then we go to dinner or something. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like 95% shenanigans if this was the first date. So yeah somebody missed out yeah <laughs> and yeah. and i should ask somebody else to go out i should i should i don't have anybody in mind i should find somebody
3: <laughs> just for this movie
1: 6 months from now this is netflix and chill for somebody okay
3: this movie actually faked me out once during um, edith's father die oh, scene they yeah. kept on Go into that razor blade. That was like, he's about to slice his own throat. He's about to get his throat sliced. That razor blade's about to be a murder weapon. And then face smash on the sink. Sa- well, good job, movie. You got me.
2: Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. Not so, sure why oh, I'm... Both Amanda and I were like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck.
0: Oh. Oh! Um. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that I'm was not sure why either. I'm so surprised by how graphic that scene was. I mean, I've seen Pan's Labyrinth. I've seen the bit with the razor in the mouth. I know that this is the kind of very graphic brutality that Guillermo del Toro is known for. And yet, I was like, holy shit, that's his face. (laughs) Okay, explain to me. His
3: face was, like, it was smushed and it was bashed and how were the police standing there going like, he slipped and fell and hit his head?
1: Well, that was Ellen's point. Yeah. Have you ever seen a person accidentally
0: hit the... What are you even... I feel like these were the same people in Sleepy Hollow who kept moving the bodies before Ichabod Crane could come to investigate... It's like They just don't know what they're doing, or they do and they're hiding something, or they really are just that incompetent. I can imagine them not entirely knowing anything about early forensics, particularly in that part of New York.
4: Yeah.
3: But, I mean, there's forensic, and then there's just, I can see that his face is now bloody
1: <laughs> Maybe they just didn't want to look at it for too long. <laughs> right. Well, and what are your expectations? I mean, like, did it even seem plausible that he would have been murdered? I mean, so they just went, oh, well, I mean... They have very little forensic imagination, I guess. Mm. I think that was partly so graphic, just like when you see the murder in silhouette, I was like, that isn't Tom Hiddleston's hair. That's yeah. Lucille, is who that is. But I yep. think the violence of it was meant to misdirect you as to who did it.
4: I think yep. the
3: violence of it is because he called him Missy and she didn't like it.
1: Oh. Had not thought of that. <laughs>
3: I mean he was kind of rude to her. So you could there's there was a touch of you were rude to me. You're about to get eaten. You're going to get at. <laughs> <laughs> but that scene in the morgue, just the one more touch is there was, I felt there was a a sincerely touching and realistic thing when Edith says like don't touch his body. Like don't treat him. He's very touchy about his appearance. He doesn't he's about to turn 60. He doesn't want to look want to look his age. And well, it was, that was- just it was so sincerely like yes because he just died in her grief she's still like thinking of him as the person he was and and it was oh it was so touching.
0: Yeah. I will say Mia Vasakovska she's a wonderful actress I've seen her do contemporary stuff but she's just has the perfect aesthetic for this kind of period drama which is one of the reasons I think she was such a good Jane Eyre as well. So. I, 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 would love, I don't want her to do the sort of like early years of Helena Bonham Carter where she just does nothing but corset movies. Mm-hmm. But she's so good in corset movies.
3: Jane Eyre and also Alice in Wonderland, Tom Burton's.
0: Did you know that they've made a sequel to that? Like they've already filmed it and it's coming out next year. Oh god. Really? Yeah. Like I, I did not notice until I was like looking up her Wikipedia page and I was like, wait, really? Wait, when did they do that? When, when, I was not looking. When did this happen?
1: I have not seen Only Lovers Left Alive, and I should, but wasn't she also in that? With Yeah, her she thing? is.
0: Yeah, she's really good so at that, actually.
1: I suddenly went, wait, they probably have a, a, well, they obviously have a pre-existing working relationship. That might be why their chemistry was so good, because there's this sense of, we already know each other, that mm-hmm. came across really quickly with Edith and Thomas, and I think that helped.
3: So I watched that movie the same day I watched Crimson, I came back from Crimson Peak and said, you know what, this is my movie day, so I got on Netflix. And the next movie I watched was Only Lovers Left Alive because I'd been meaning to and just never got around to it. And it was just so weird because for once Mio Wasikowska is in like contemporary clothing. I haven't seen the kids all right. This is a new thing for. Me.
1: <laughs> I wanted to see Stoker so bad. I have it on DVD and I have just never sat down and watched it. And it is I, contemporary. I think you. I feel
0: like you'd like Stoker. It is that same kind of lurid very very open about how ridiculous it is i don't want to say if it's entirely sovereign gothic it has elements of that but i think it's far more far more melodramatic than that like nicole has come to town she knows what movies he's in, like. uh, <laughs> I do. so does so where... matthew good he's really good it, actually
1: i want to see something so bad and then it's like because i never got to it's I don't want to say I put it on a pedestal, but it's almost like, well, now I don't want to see it and have it not live up to my expectations. Ah, I need to just make myself watch that and Only Lovers Left Alive is what I need to do.
3: The thing about I wanted to bring up about Only Lovers is that, now, they're not a couple in that one, and that one is Tom Hiddleston and Tilda Swinton, our romantic yeah kids. And she plays Tilda Swinton's little sister, who you know bursts into their lives and ruins everything and she and Tom Hiddleston's characters already have a pre-established animosity well he does towards her and she's just kind of like flitting around the world not giving a damn what anybody thinks there's a scene there where she's almost like a child of theirs where it's evening so they're vampires they're and Swinton and Hiddleston are still in bed and like she bursts into the room and jumps onto bed with him and she's like literally sitting on his head at one point so, <laughs> they obviously had to have like just put up with each other up in each other's personal space
1: they definitely know each other
3: right filming that so i think when they went to play lovers <laughs> in crimson peaks like look we've already like i've had my face buried basically in your crotch at one point during the movie we can do this <laughs>
1: it's totally okay the the interesting thing is what I know about the plot of that movie comes from the Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab perfume descriptions. This is apparently their second official Tom Hiddleston collection. <laughs> but on Halloween, they're coming out with the Crimson Peak scents. And I don't know the descriptions for all of them. I know they'll have a Lucille, and I haven't seen it yet. And they're going to have jewelry. I'm like, does that mean there's going to be a ring? Is there going to be a ring? I have to have it. And they have nail polish. I sent you guys the link. I was just yeah. like... Oh, I don't have enough money for all of this.
3: Oh my god. So excited. Now, while we are on that subject, is Aromaly doing Crimson Peak?
1: You know, we're not um I I kind of wanted to to beg her to do something with that, but she is so swamped with we've had to move the Twin Peaks collection to like probably next well, it's gotta be next year at this point. Which I mean, since the show is is taking a while to come back that that works out just fine. But I went and looked uh, to see what she had that was uh, had a similar palette. And I think really the Hannibal collection covers it with, like, the yellows, the reds, the blues, uh, a beautiful greenish blue called Sublime. Like, I, I kind of think we've got it covered if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that she'd want to try to do something with that similar a palette. Right now, we've got uh, the Red Dragon mini collection we just nailed that down this week and it's pre-ordered and like uh sold out but she'll put the extras online and uh that should be mailing out on november the 1st i'm super excited about that we had the primavera set come out uh earlier this month but like this was the eyeshadow i gave out at dragon con that was called 666 like i had a couple people who were a little upset about that they're like, why'd you have to call it that? And I was like, because it's an episode title and it's a painting. It's the name of the beast is 666. And they were like, oh, so you didn't just want to make it like Satan for no reason. And I was like, well, not for no reason. <laughs> right. The other one's called, like, there's one called Luciferus, And I was like, because he's got a slide that says Lucifer over his face. He's Satan, guys.
2: <laughs> right. So that's basically made up.
1: Anyway, but it, it's man that just made me think of like who would who would be the Satan in this movie? And there there is no Satan. I mean, it's very no. sad when you realize what was Del Toro saying the other day, like on Twitter. There's a whole backstory about how awful the parents were mm-hmm. to them, and I don't know if he was saying it's in the, the novelization or if it's in the art book or something, but.
3: I think the art book, I remember the tweet you are talking about. He said there's a lot more background in the art book. Which
1: now I I clearly have to get all of this. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I would love to know how much of of the whole background is... Like, what was it? Was the father beating Lucille? So Thomas took the beatings for her? No, I think she took the beatings for
2: him.
3: For him? Yeah. Yeah. And the father broke the mother's leg by stomping her at once, if Lucille's telling the truth. Which, but I mean, we saw, I mean <laughs> we saw the painting with I
0: mean,
1: that's a big F. We saw the painting with a
3: cane. hmm And, yeah, so...
1: But it could also be that Lucille was the one who actually... Well, we know she was the one who actually killed her. Yeah. yeah. But that Something was... About, oh, man. Yeah. That scene with the teacup and the porridge and the, the, the scraping and the... I'm going to make you better. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, I have a kind of
3: little thing and that leads us into a big... Into a... Another bigger discussion that we haven't had in the actual recording yet, and that is why is it always the attic? Like, in these, like, why is the wife in the attic in J.A.R.? And now, not only that, but I mean, presumably she and Thomas now have their own rooms, but when Enola's ghost is like, Edith, go look at them having sex, they're back in their little attic room that they were locked in as children.
1: And, and that's his work room, and I was like, that's like Stockholm Syndrome or something. Like, this is what we know, and so this is where, where we feel safe.
3: It's almost like, as when they say, the ghosts are trapped in the houses. They're not ghosts yet at that point, but they're trapped in that attic.
2: Yeah, I I think that's... Mentally, emotionally, yeah.
3: And then we can go into flowers in the attic, which (laughs) we haven't actually talked.
1: I'm just surprised Lucille wasn't also serving her cookies with the tea. Like... (laughs) When they literally said, we were he- we were kept in an attic, I was like, are you shitting me? Are you really <laughs> shitting me? Because I knew they were sleeping together from the moment you, you first see Lucille at the piano. And, you know, she kind of looks around like she almost has that stop hitting on my brother radar. But also mm-hmm. like, oh, here's a new victim. But you could tell she wasn't happy. And I was like, they're doing it. They're sleeping together. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's just how this goes. <laughs> I've seen a movie before. <laughs>
3: You know what's kind of interesting? I think in the very beginning, the movie almost a little bit started to suggest that, you know, we were talking about who's driving at Lucille or Thomas, because in the very beginning, Lucille's the one saying things like, but she's very young and are you sure it's her? As opposed to, you know, Eunice being the next victim they choose, which almost slightly suggests how maybe Thomas is the one choosing them and Lucille's going along with it. But once you've seen the whole movie and you realize Lucille was the driver, and you go back and you know rewatch those scenes and think about them again i think it's like those hesitations on her part are rooted in you're not meant to fall in love with him like he she she wants to push him back towards the one she knows he's not in love with
2: yeah right but if he'd gone with Eunice she has family
3: yeah which is the other thing like Eunice really didn't fit like he didn't fit their yeah. Eunice
2: didn't fit their victim profile <laughs> Yes, And yet the golden retriever came after her anyway
1: So Well I think they were kind of looking around At the landscape and being like Okay well she's rich I guess we're just going to have to kill off her family But we could probably do that (laughs) Here's what I
3: want to know If Edith's their fourth Victim What do they do with the money from the previous What are you doing with that money That you're burning through them
1: at the rate of one wife For two years and you don't even fix the roof, like <laughs> yeah. yeah. Building your, your precious they're...
2: little machine probably did not take
0: all that
2: money. Well, that, or
0: maybe they weren't successful in getting the money. Yeah, maybe. The suggestion of you know they they, they actually need them to sign over the money, mm-hmm. and with um you know the the hurried recordings from from the the other wife where she just says they're just after my money. It sounds like maybe she didn't actually. Get around to giving it to them. Mm. They're like, well, we can't really get the money out of you now, or, you know. Right, be, like, or they stay. hadn't really
2: perfected their MO and killed her too fast.
0: Well, if at first you don't succeed,
1: you know. Right. I did get to Carnegie Hall. <laughs> as, as I recall, Edith. Thought that alan was dead at that point she didn't know it was a ruse at that point mm-hmm. right and so when is all like sign the papers i'd have been like fuck you i'm not signing the papers what are you gonna do kill me you're, <laughs> you're gonna, gonna kill me it? anyway right. mm-hmm. so i mean i i could see somebody in that situation being like fine i'll just die of tuberculosis then fuck you
0: mm-hmm. should have thought of that I enjoy the idea of Edith sitting them sitting down and just saying, you know, there are many holes in your plans here. This is some sloppy, sloppy writing. And you said I was a terrible writer.
3: <laughs> right. <laughs> that upsetting scene when Thomas insults Edith's writing.
2: Yeah. Well that was gonna be the best way to break her heart, as her father required.
3: Except he kept going. Like she was already crying and he was like, Oh look, there's oh, an no, obvious no. thing.
2: He needed to make it real. I think that was absolutely what he needed to do
3: that was an intense scene
2: and that that was the thing that was going to convince her father and that was the thing that was going to convince her
1: and i really like that it wasn't like you're ugly and i don't like you it was this is something you do this is something you're proud of it's you know something you've accomplished that i'm going to insult and also tom hiddleston is such a good actor that you could tell it was kind of killing him Thomas mm-hmm. it was kind of killing him to say that yeah and she wouldn't be savvy enough to see that especially when he's humiliating her in front of all the dinner guests like you know why would you do that unless she meant it but I mean that that's just such a well-done scene and it was horrible and I couldn't watch it and I didn't even see her slap him I heard it because <laughs> I could not watch I was basically covering my face I was like I can't handle what's happening right now
4: yeah
3: the one background thing I really, you know, the art books and the novelizations that I'm interested in is what, do, you know, as you mentioned, they Toro sort saying like, you know, the horrible things that happened to Thomas and Lucille, because there's almost a throwaway line that Charlie Hunnam's character Alan has where he says, you know, and then Lucille was sent to, quote, a nunnery in Switzerland, but I think it was a different institution. So, you know, a mental sanatorium sen- mm-hmm. or whatever they call them. And she has these little scars on her face. And as far as I know, they're not Jessica Chastain's. Like, those are, I think, in-character scars. So mm-hmm. what did they do to her there? <laughs> There's that. That's where the real, you know, gothic horror is, you know, the mental institutions of the 19th century. and
1: Like, yeah. they're so bad that even in Jane Eyre, and they play this up more in the movie to make him look less... Completely horrific, but it's like no keeping her in the attic was merciful compared to what an asylum would have been like.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, like that's a you know there is a great I don't know if y'all have ever read Louisa May Alcott's A Long Fatal Love Chase. <laughs> oh, I
2: I read it. I reviewed it earlier this year.
1: Yeah, that's I love that book so much, and it is such a great takeoff on Jane Eyre because it's basically. What if Jane had really married Rochester without Mm -hmm. knowing and then found out his wife was still alive and then been like, fuck you, I'm out of here. Yeah. And she ends up in an asylum at one point. And it's not nearly as terrible as it really would have been. But it is definitely like a a gothic romance trope of like, uh, she wrote another story about. I want to say it's called like a whisper in the darkness. This is one of her blood and thunder gothic stories she wrote as uh, AM Barnard. And it it is a girl who's trapped. I I think it's more of like a a private house where she's being held, but it has an asylum quality. It's because she's gone mad and she's like, "No, I haven't. What's wrong?" Oh my god, and they want her money. So it's that that it's very much a gothic trope that you I don't know to what extent uh, Del Toro and and whoever was writing it with him is familiar with Louisa May Alcott's Gothic romance work, but there is a lot that of overlap in some of the stuff going on.
2: And yet, and yet, Edith, or no, yet Lucille, cool motive, still murder. <laughs>
3: <laughs> on the theme of kind of writers who secretly only really wanted to write lurid gothic stories but were forced to write other things they mention arthur conan doyle in that scene with alan where and they do the thing like well he was an ophthalmologist like me but he was also a detective like edith Wilson. and i'm like he was a spiritualist he believed in ghosts like you're not saying the thing that he's actually <laughs> mentioned in this movie for all he wanted was to write his ghost stories
1: and he was so into spirit photography too i mean
2: i was surprised
1: that it never came back really the, I don't know. The if,
2: spirit photography didn't come back in the movie.
1: Was that like, just supposed to lampshade why mineral clay ghosts were bleeding around the house? I mean, I guess
2: so. I guess so. I fully expected that to come back in some
0: bigger way. I feel like that was Alan's moment of, "Hey, you like ghost stuff? I like ghost stuff. Don't we have so much in common?" Right. I like Charlie Hunnam in this. Every time I see him, there's just this, like, sigh of relief that he's not doing Fifty Shades of Grey. (laughs) (laughs) Now he gets to be Guillermo del Toro's posse. Yeah.
3: So you want a slight moment of maybe fridge horror, maybe just fridge discomfort. But you know the ghost that I'm assuming was Pamela? It was the one that was crawling down the hallway, like, yelling at Edith, right? One of the red clay ghosts in the house. Uh-huh. Pamela was the one in the wheelchair. Do you think she died when they like dumped her out of the wheelchair and she was desperately trying to crawl away from Lucille?
1: Uh that
0: a sad thought. No. Oh no. Let's <laughs> make oh, this makes us all sad now. <laughs> the moment you know, that wheelchair appeared when she goes up there and she sees it, um, my thoughts immediately went to the changeling. Have you seen that? No.
2: That's it's the this... Angelina Jolie one?
0: No. It's a... No. Before that, it's a George C. Scott sort of ghost yeah. story. Okay. Um, and there's a very creepy... Um, not only does it have a very creepy wheelchair, but it has a very creepy red bouncy ball. No, no. <laughs> okay, so, well... You no, know, seriously, it's, it's genuinely <laughs> unsettling. It's The way it bounces down the stairs, you think, that's really effective and now I'm never going to sleep again. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. This whole movie was basically Guillermo del Toro going through his DVD collection like, oh, I could include bits from that and bits from this. And yes, The Shining. I oh, don't know, I really like this book and I'm going to put it in here. He basically got paid to make the fanfiction we all deserve. And I'm so glad he did. And I'm really sad that the potential underperforming box office will mean we won't get more stuff like this. Because it's just going to be, you know, every Halloween we're going to get another found footage horror movie that costs like $2 million to make. Because it's immediately going to make back like 20 times its budget. Right. Pacific Rim
1: didn't do well either. And I'm yeah, not... But
0: China. It made big money at right. the Chinese box office. And this one may not get the chance to do that because apparently there is a ban on ghost stories in China. Yeah. It's not a ghost story. It's a story with ghosts. That's... I mean, if you want to argue the semantics to the Chinese government, we can do that. I mean,
3: sure. <laughs> this might actually be why they didn't bother making it in 3D if it wasn't going to air in China anyway because China is the primary reason for the 3D.
4: Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I, I did mean domestically on, on that. I mean, it's so interesting that I don't know if – it reminds me weirdly of how The Matrix didn't do well in theater, but it blew up on home video. Mm -hmm. And I think Pacific Rim was a little bit like that. But, like, people would have loved it in the theater if they'd just gone to see it. I mean, his stuff you do kind of have to see on a big screen. I went and saw this in IMAX, and I have no regrets. I was Mm -hmm. like, you know, let me live in it. But I don't understand if it's the market – like, it it would be one thing if you said – We can't get hardcore horror fans to go see a very, for lack of a better word, feminine gothic romance. But like, well, how do you explain Pacific Rim? I mean, that was monsters beating each other up, monsters and robots. How do you not go see monsters versus robots? I don't understand that. But especially for Crimson Peak, because I know you've
0: mentioned you haven't really seen much of the marketing for the movie but for the marketing that I, I saw, I don't know if it was different for the US marketing, they're playing up as just a straight horror movie. Yeah. And it's not. Yeah. And I wonder, would they have done better if they'd advertised it for what it is? Or are they just genuinely so afraid to have girly cooties all over the screen? Because this was a similar thing that happened with the Mad Max Fury Road marketing. Yeah. Which really kind of tries to play down the fact that this entire movie is about how men have fucked up the world and women need to fix it
1: with guns. I- I know that trailer specifically turned off my sister, Mad Max. She did not want to see it. Her verdict was that it looked like it was trying too hard. And I came back and I was like, no, no, you don't understand. They are like stealth, you know, the stealth feminism aspect. It's so badass. Max is hardly, he's not even really the focus, you know, but it took people, it took people like me coming back and yelling about it. Mm -hmm. For like a solid month. And people hearing, you know, seeing that the reviews were great. And people, everybody who came back just screamed about it. Two and three weeks later, that's when people started to go. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I was yelling about this movie for like the week before and the week after. Because I knew it was going to be a similar situation. That it was like, no, you have to trust me. Go see it. And some people came back and said, I wish I liked it as much as you did. Or I just really don't like horror And even the things you have described, I would not be able to handle. And I'm like, that's totally cool. I I get Mm. it. But if you're just sitting there going, I would like this, but I don't think it's good. No, believe me. Just trust me.
2: Yeah. It's not, it's definitely not legit horror. And I can tell because I was able to sleep.
1: Which, I mean, as metrics go, it's a pretty accurate one. (laughs) Hannibal has just totally thrown off my horror meter. I just uh, I was like maybe this is horror. I can't really tell. <laughs> like Yeah, but I, I like say I say
2: I don't do horror and people are like, "But you watch Hannibal." And I'm like, "That's not That's not horror. That's not jump scares that are and things that are trying to get at me personally.
0: But I think that's like one of the things that we have that's sort of in common with with Hannibal and Crimson Peak, which is they are kind of genre benders in many ways. Mm -hmm. You know, Hannibal has horror elements, but it's also, you know, it's a crime drama. It's a psychological thriller. It's a very, very black comedy. It's the world's most twisted romance. It's soap opera. And you get a lot of that with Crimson Peak as well. And I think one of the issues that we have with modern film, I, I can't say if it's particularly new to modern film I think it's probably been a problem with Hollywood for a long time is they don't really know how to market anything that is remotely idiosyncratic Mm -hmm. because it's a risky business it's a really expensive business to make a film even you know 50 million dollars is a mid budget film by Hollywood standards now and they don't make mid budget films they make giant tentpole movies that are designed to appeal to the the widest audience possible and as such a lot of the more unique elements end up getting diluted there are obviously exceptions but it does become more of a a sort of an assembly line because it's the safest way to keep your money. Yeah. So putting they money... Make... It, the fact that this even got made is actually a surprise and it's probably a testament to the the power of, of Guillermo del Horror's name.
2: Right. I think I think I'm actually quoting you from our award season podcast earlier this year, when they make 10 poles and they make award spades.
0: Yeah, and there's no real middle ground there you get Mm -hmm. the seasonal stuff like the horror films but they're all going to be films that cost you know like a tenth of what leonardo DiCaprio makes per picture Mm -hmm. there's not going to be a lot of horror films like this you're going to get the i saw the trailer for the new paranormal activity movie before this you know that will have cost maybe 10 million dollars to make which is high for you know a found footage horror movie but you can get the funding for that easily because you know you're guaranteed to make your money back. This was considered a risk. Mm-hmm. Even Mad Max is considered a risk with the with that name recognition because it was like 30 years out of date by what we would consider a franchise. And you don't have to make... Um, you know, your churned out quote-unquote safe idea doesn't have to necessarily be a bad or dull or un- interesting movie because look at Mad Max.
1: You know... What's so interesting in the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years, 15 years, like you've had the blockbuster tentpole culture that probably started with, I guess, Jaws. And that's when the shift really happened. And, you know, film historians will will tell you that. But in the last several years specifically, it's become so focused on the first weekend. You live and die by that first weekend. And it's to the point where it's like they take – 150, 200 million dollars, put it down on the gambling table and either you make a billion dollars or you flop. Mm-hmm. And it's this all or nothing idea is, is so. You know, maybe you don't want to see the movie the first weekend. You kind of have to, or it might not be in the theater three, four mm-hmm. weeks later. And I I remember when I was like a kid or whatever, movies would stay in the theater for months. They yeah. wouldn't come out on VHS for a year or two. You had no idea when you'd see it again. And there were far fewer movies competing. And so I, I think you're right in talking about – um, the idiosyncrasy of it. Like when I I don't know why Jurassic World just popped in my head. I really disliked, I mean, forget the high heels per se. I really disliked the storyline of like, oh, once again, it's a hard working businesswoman who doesn't understand that family is the most important of all. And here is the, you know, sassy adventurer guy who's gonna teach her how to live again. And it's the most trite like that's shit from the eighties. What is that? And it's because it's a story people easily understand and recognize. As mm-hmm. offensive as it was to me, maybe that's too strong a word, offensive. As oh, much as it no. turned me yeah. off. Yeah. As much as it turned me off, it was incredibly lazy, but there's a reason for that. Like it's partly creative laziness, but they're counting on audience laziness to but accept. The that with Sorry,
0: but, sorry to interrupt you, but the problem with that um, that reasoning is it really shows how lazy a lot of the Hollywood thinking is. Because a movie like Jurassic World, okay, I don't think people expected it to become the third most success, highest grossing film of all time, but they certainly expected that thing to gross at least half a billion dollars. Yeah, It was in many ways a guaranteed hit, and yet they still took the most, you know, they got the tracing paper of Romancing the Stone and so many other films and went over it again and again and again. They mm-hmm. didn't need to do that. They did that because it was the easiest route to do it, or perhaps it was what was mandated to Colin Trevorrow. Although the more I listen to him talk, the more I just think, "Go away." But if you look a at the, bit. if you look at like, the highest-grossing films, so many of the top ten, actually all of the top ten except for Titanic, are from 2000 onwards. Most of them are from the past three or four years. You know, mm-hmm. it's Minions is now in a top ten. It's Iron Man, Free, Frozen. Definitely had those part two, Avengers: Age of Ultron, Furious Seven, The Avengers, Jurassic World, Titanic, and Avatar. But
3: that's not adjusted for inflation. Yeah,
0: is that that's no? Not adjusted. But in terms of how we view the modern blockbuster, it's really the attitude of you've got to spend money to make money because none of these movies were cheap. I mean, the amount of money that Minions spent alone on on licensing the Beatles songs would pay for you know probably one or two Crimson Peaks.
1: Well, and what's so interesting is that I, when I say they're counting on the laziness of the audience, I, I think to an extent it works and to an extent it's insulting because audiences really do want so much more than that, oh, or at least some audiences do. Particularly, I think younger audiences are coming to expect a lot more. Like Mad Max said, we're going to give you a badass movie and we are also going to trust that you can read between the lines, see the world building without us info dumping it and you will appreciate these characters. And we did. And I feel like Crimson Peak is similarly saying, we are not going to pander to your expectations of, Oh, help this little damsel. And Alan comes in and saves her. No, we have something we're going to say about this and we're going to trust you to enjoy that and to get what we're doing with that without completely you know, hitting you over the head with it. And I really appreciate, or Pacific Rim. I think he very much did that with Pacific Rim. Mm -hmm. And I always appreciate nowadays when movies do that. And I think that's why Jurassic world stuck out so badly to me because it was the next thing I saw after Mad Max. And it felt like such a throwback after that, where I was like, this is even worse than the status quo we had. This is, so regressive. Why are we doing this? There's no need for this. I mean, you could even frame it as here is a business executive. Family is important to her. And she keeps saying to the people around her, I need more time to be with my family. Why are you a soulless corporation? It could have been more an external conflict where she already had the good values as opposed to, I need a man to teach me this. Mm-hmm. And I, it's such a subtle change, and I think it's the kind of thing Del Toro has done in his movies where he has looked at that and he has made that subtle change. We're like, yes, Alan comes to save her, but immediately gets stabbed and nearly killed, and she is then left to say, now I've got to save him too. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense for a stranger walking into the situation who has no idea what these people are capable of to get shanked and not even see it coming. And I mean, that's logical to me.
0: And I think that we, particularly as women, we get excited when a male filmmaker gets it. Like for all, like, I know that there are, you know, feminist reviews of Mad Max Fury Road that didn't like that film. But for a guy who's been in the industry that long, who has made all of these kind of films to really sort of stand up and say, okay, I want to learn how to do this properly so that it will be good for women and I don't have to rely on the same regressive shit that mm-hmm. I am expected to rely on and will be rewarded for as such, is a big deal. Because then you look at stuff like Colin Trevorrow, where he gave that interview to io9, and he seemed genuinely shocked to have been called out on the regressive you know, gender politics of that movie. It's a movie with four main women, three of whom spend most of the time crying, and then one of them basically gets the most prolonged and awful, torturous death. And he genuinely was... This is a problem when you have nothing but white men in the boardroom, white men in the studio... Because mm-hmm. you then there's this constant surprise you get of oh my god straight out of Compton made a lot of money we didn't see that coming it's like this keeps happening you know movies with black protagonists movies with women protagonists movies with you know inclusive casting and you know behind the camera and in front of it are making lots of money and getting lots of enthusiastic responses and you seem really surprised that this keeps happening right
2: what are three of the biggest TV shows on air right now Empire How to Get Away with Murder Scandal. And, and yet, yet you're somehow. going to
0: constantly see. Yeah, but you're oh, you're going to constantly see articles saying, "So, what does this mean?" It's like, right. Or what
1: yeah. it means. What they did to Sleepy Hollow. What apparently oh, Fox. Oh. I've been told Fox shut down a diversity initiative or division, yeah. and suddenly, second season Sleepy Hollow gets a lot whiter. Yeah, and it, I stopped watching it after like season two, episode three, when they had katrina be responsible for pushing the fiance off i was like the fuck kind of treatment of women is this get out and i just i couldn't be bothered to watch it after that and it's like why did you mess with such a great formula you know now orlando jones i can't remember if they fired him or he left it was ambiguous yeah
0: was it made clear i don't think it was but the way that that show squandered all of its goodwill
4: Mm-hmm. Is astounding mm-hmm.
0: to me. Not so much the showrunners. Well, I think the people that they did end up bringing in to take over the show, I don't know if that was a Fox mandate or if they were just kind of relying on what they know. But for I the show like- to go from, you know, Orlando Jones interacting with the fans and getting really excited about fan fiction and fan theory and all of these things, which is so rare for that to happen. Mm-hmm. But it's a really an emerging trend now as, you know, the idea of fans and social media has become kind of an expected part of these kind of shows. But the way that they just sort of tossed that aside as if it was nothing was... It wasn't a surprise necessarily because I think a lot of those people don't understand how fans work. Mm-hmm. But it was hugely
1: disappointing. Yeah. They got a writer who had previously worked for Sports Illustrated. Like... Oh turn that Turn that over in your mind a moment. Like... That holy character was literally, in the literal sense of literally, the last fucking thing anybody wanted on that show. And it's like they don't understand like, what you're kind of referring to, the the Empire phenomenon. It's like they just cut their nose off to spite their face. It's like we want more white dudes watching this show. We're not happy with the success we have because we don't understand it. It's not good enough that it's success. We're just going to why why i'm st- i'm never gonna stop being upset over what they did to that show just yeah. wh- why why did you do it? it you everything was perfect why did you do it
3: partly because it was such an unexpected sleeper hit like we thought it would be kind of bad and we started watching it and said you know there are things about it we like so much yeah and it was great and the second season happened and
2: it's like <laughs> let me punch
4: okay. you right. for liking
0: it.
2: okay i'm out I, i'm tapping out
0: But it was really clear as well that like all of the actors involved knew that this show was basically going down to toilet. They didn't even invite Nicole Bahari to the DVD commentary recording. And she
1: put a picture on Instagram like, well, I'm not there. I wonder what's happening with that.
0: The lead, the
3: literal lead of the show.
1: She said some wonderfully shady things on Twitter now and then. Just some wonderfully. And I'm using the word shade correctly here. I read shade court. (laughs) I know how to use this. It was just like really positive things that you were like, yeah, that's directed at them being assholes. I, yeah. And Orlando Jones said things too. And it was just like, he was I mean, he People was rallied less around
0: her. You know, people rallied around Nicole Bahari because she's one of the reasons that the show was so good in that first season. You know, she is a great actress. She deserves a show that, you know, can support her talent. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed what I was reminded of is a couple years ago there was a Broadway musical version of Rocky, the the Sylvester Stallone movie. Yeah. And there was an article in the New York Times about the show wasn't doing very well, surprise, surprise. And the producers were really annoyed that their target audience weren't coming to see the film because they were making this film for the cool, sporty, 30-something guy who doesn't go to see musicals. But the people who were going to see it and loving it were women who like musicals. And they just did not care that this group of people were going to see their show. And keeping it you know, open and making them at least a margin of money. They didn't make their money back, but it ran longer than it would have if those women weren't going. Just, I know that this thing goes by demographics and stuff, but why are you constantly appealing your material to people who don't want to watch it? It's the whole idea of I'm making a, you know, a science fiction film for people who don't like sci fi. Make it for people what? who do like
1: it. They've got right. money. Yeah. I just, I don't understand this. It's this willful almost like spite where it's like, I could make money and be successful, but I don't want you to have nice things. I want these dude bros to have nice things, and I want their money, or I don't want money at all. I'm like, what? Right.
2: the well, Teen Titans too. which oh, yeah. Young
1: Justice uh, got
0: cancelled
2: <laughs> because too many girls were watching it.
0: Or look uh, at the way yeah. that Marvel seemed determined to not make any merchandise with Black Widow on it.
1: Mm-hmm. even and there was our- a
0: massive market for it.
1: I remember them saying somebody wrote to them and asked why and it turned out to be that they already had the Disney princess they they already had the female market taken care of and like they wanted a demarcation and it was literally like what? We don't want your money. We we get your money over here. We don't want to take your money over here. And it's like, I'm sorry, did you literally just say we don't want to take your money?
3: I I want to kind of expand on this a little bit maybe for our listeners who don't like, I don't read up on this as much, but yeah, what literally happens is they believe, and it doesn't matter that it's not true because you know, they're marketing, they've decided that this is how marketing works. That if girls spend money on things like merchandising from the MCU and mm-hmm. watching Young Justice and Teen Titans, then that money is being quote unquote stolen from My Little Pony and Disney Princess, and I don't know, The Winx or whatever the modern definition of The Winx is. And it doesn't matter that it's not true. This is how they have decided the world works.
0: It is the like, most regressive way to look at the world. And even though there is pretty hard data and you know numbers to prove that this isn't true, that girls will watch superhero movies and they want to watch things with you know monsters and vampires and aliens mm-hmm. and all of these things because we're not defined by this narrow set of definitions of what it means to be a girl or what it means to be a woman – They do not, either they don't understand it or they don't want to. And honestly, the more it happens, the more it feels like the latter. The more it feels like there is this weird, gendered conspiracy to stop women from liking things. It is very, I don't want to invoke that hate group, but it's the same mentality.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just don't, just, the the self- sabotage of it I don't understand why do you not I don't have much money why do you not want what I am still willing to give you even though I don't have a whole lot I'm still willing to give it to you why will you not take it I don't I don't understand
0: it's not just I, that they, they're not happy with having some money they want to have all the money they want to have all the money from the people that are just like them and since films and TV and publishing are still primarily dominated by you know straight cisgender white dudes from a middle class background they obviously see their stories as being relatable and universal on that front mm-hmm. it doesn't matter that the most you know popular strain of publishing is romance and it makes a billion dollars a year that's not the right kind of money
1: yeah then go fuck themselves what i find so interesting is that i am super super burnt out on superheroes and particularly the mcu and i mean i i did watch uh agent carter for like 3 episodes and then not agent carter's fault at all i i don't remember if i was having headaches or what it was i just was not around to watch it when it was coming on i keep meaning to catch up on it so i mean i i know they have that but like i think i just got burnt out on dude superhero movies three of them a year and if they had had a black widow movie i probably would have been way more interested i probably Mm -hmm. would have come back to the fold for that and like now i'm like this Jessica Jones thing actually looks pretty good. And once again, this is, I don't think we, we said it since we started recording. I didn't watch any of the Crimson Peak promos because I knew I wanted to see it. And so I just was like, I want to go in cold. So apparently this Jessica Jones trailer that has just come out yesterday is fantastic. And I was like, yeah. no, no, I don't want to watch it. I don't want to watch it. I'm going to watch the show. But like, I am willing to watch Jessica Jones sight unseen. And that's part of the MCU, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it's related. Yeah. So, <clears throat> Like I have total MCU fatigue and I'm going to watch this site unseen. Like that that is how interested I am in a female driven story. That if you tell me, Yeah, it looks good, trust me on this, I'm like, okay, I'm there. Yeah. But they don't they don't want to take my money, you know? Right. It's
2: like, and Captain Marvel keeps getting oh, pushed yeah. back for
1: Twice first now? it was
2: for Spider Man, the second time is for what? I don't even remember.
1: You know, the constant Spider-Man reboots, it reminds me of Rust Cole. Not, not just specifically time is a flat circle, but the way they're apparently going to kill off Uncle Ben again. It's like that episode, which again, I watched True Detective because of Carrie Fukunaga. Once he left, I didn't give a shit anymore. Mm. Um, it, it's like when he sits there and he's talking about the how people are just going to have these horrible deaths. You know, I watched these two I watch these two children. They're just gonna die over and over because time is a flat circle. Uncle Ben's just gonna keep dying and there's nothing we can do about it. You know, like just quit. Just right. quit. I'm so
2: tired. <laughs> and if we really need to have Spider-Man again spoiler, we don't. There are other Spider-Mens. There's Miles Morales. I was
1: supposed to get Miles no. Morales. Yeah. Spider-Man.
2: Ben is going to be the world's most powerful magical girl.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Anime fans will find this very funny.
1: <laughs> here, here are my Spider Mans. Look at my Spider Mans. My Spider Mans. Look at them. <laughs> I think this is
0: also the problem with um, because, as I mentioned earlier, you know the the constant you know copy pasting of what we have as a modern blockbuster. What Marvel has done is is nothing short of revolutionary. For them to create this completely intertwining universe is really impressive. But once again, they seem really unwilling to kind of embrace this very eager and growing audience. Because, but they only seem to be willing as well to give them a token film. You mm-hmm. know, it's like you get Captain Marvel and that's it. If you're a person of color, you'll get Black Panther and that is it. And it doesn't seem to register to them that maybe they should try more. But there was, um, was it Dan? No, it's not Dan to do. He's DC. Um, Is it Kevin Feige? Is he the, yeah. the Marvel yeah, guy? Yeah,
4: Kevin Because yeah.
0: he was asked about all, he's been asked about all of this several times and his answers, they varied from being insulting to oblivious. Mm-hmm. But even if you look at like the, the, the individual films themselves, you know, I really like Guardians of the Galaxy, but the way that film treats Gamora is atrocious.
3: Yeah, I had a lot of problems with that film. Yeah. I just can't like it because of that. And I was all set to love it.
0: The way that Marvel are picking their behind-the-camera talent as well is, it's it's either fascinating or weird or creepy. I can't really decide. You know, uh, James Gunn, who directed Guardians of the Galaxy, was best known for directing tromo horror movies. The new guy who's going to be directing the Spider-Man film, his last film was like a $300,000 indie thriller with Kevin Bacon. Um they're they're looking at for far free, they're looking at Taika YTT, who, you know, worked on what we do in the shadows and Flight of the Concords. These are not people who have made big budget films. They're Colin Trevorrow for Jurassic World, you know, his pre- he's only made one film before, Safety Not Guaranteed, which cost about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to make. I, I think they
2: made that money that movie with the money they found in the couch cushions.
0: Pretty much. And on the one hand, it's interesting and often quite admirable that they are giving such a huge and important opportunity and serious level of belief to these filmmakers that they can go from micro-budget to big-budget, even though it's also exceptionally risky. But they're only doing this with primarily white men. Like there was When they've been talking about Taika Waititi, he would be the first non-white director of a Marvel movie.
1: Think about that. Who was it who what movie was it? It's like the guy who wrote Pride and Prejudice and Zombies or Seth Graham. Seth Graham Sniff. He's gonna be directing The Flash. He has only ever directed two television episodes. I saw I saw writers on Twitter. I think um I saw writers on Twitter who were flipping the fuck out. White male writers who were like, This is bullshit. This is bullshit. Why did they not give it to a director? And a a real experienced director, they just, I think at some point somebody had said, he reminds me of myself, the people who hired him. And it was like, so that's why. You're literally hiring people who remind you of you, whether they have experience or qualification.
2: I wonder, I wonder, and just kind of, I'm just having this thought now. So let me, let me kind of tease it out. I wonder if it's not so much, oh, we're going to give this guy, this kid a chance of, Oh, we're gonna throw a ridiculous amount at this kid's head and they're gonna do whatever we tell them to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I and, think there is a lot of that.
2: Yeah. And there was sort of some undercurrent in the um in the Ava Ava, Ava DeVernay saying, No, I I turned down Black Panther because I didn't want to be subject to what they want me to do.
1: Well, and Edgar Wright and Ant-Man, he was just like, no, yeah. I'm not doing what you want. Apparently, he was just really, he did not want to cope with the amount of world building and backstory that had nothing to do with Ant-Man that would attach it to the rest of the universe. And he was just like, no, I'm going to make a, a movie unto itself, or we're not going to do this. So he walked. I mean, I, this is why I don't entirely blame Colin Trevorrow for the Jurassic World thing because I'm like, he made like a $5 indie movie before this. He doesn't have control over shit. Yeah, he did seem really oblivious. And so there's a sense of like, you don't even know what you don't know in terms of the gender Mm -hmm. politics. But also, like, he was chosen for a reason. Mm -hmm. And it's that he has very little power. And I think Mark, was it Mark Webb who did the previous Spider-Man movies? Before this next reboot, I yeah. guess. Who did the little indie. I mean, they, they are, I mean, like, is it Seth Graham Smith? Is that his name? A, a guy who has primarily written parodies and directed two TV episodes has no power. He has zero power. hmm And they will do whatever they want. Yeah. And Ava DuVernay now has power. Because some power because of Selma. Mm -hmm. And they're just not going to be dealing with that.
2: Right. And I think probably Edgar Wright has made them a little bit gun shy about hiring people who have enough industry
0: clout to say, how about you go fuck yourself? Well, I think Joss Whedon did that as well. I mean, the closest you get to really auteur moments in the Marvel series are those moments in the Avengers that are very clearly Joss Whedon moments, mm-hmm. and he's been quite open about the fact that this, you know, making these movies was really difficult because not just because of the expectations, but because of all the studio notes and
1: such. Right. There's that whole business with the Thor, uh, not premonit prophecy or whatever in the yeah, cave. Thor, oh Thor goes for a swim.
2: No one yeah. knows what the fuck is happening right now.
1: And they made that put, they made him, you know, put that in. And I, auteur is the word I was kind of thinking of because I mean, literally it means author. I mean, literally. And so I, which is weird because I mean, the point of an indie director is that they very much are the authors of their films, but they also don't have a whole lot of power. And so I think Marvel wants to be the author and they do not want to hand over auteurship. To their directors whereas Guillermo del Toro is very much the author of his own films I I guess to kind of tie this into the discussion what's killing me is it's like del Toro is making these movies that we want to see and there are these audiences that want to see them but they're not telling the audiences that it's there so it's like why won't you take our money right (laughs) we this isn't even, we won't make Black Widow. This is, we made it, but we won't tell you. Mm-hmm. It was,
3: should we should be noticed before we wander away from this conversation that, uh, was it two months ago now, there was that big thing that the Marvel Creative Committee has been disbanded. Mm-hmm. So these movies, which were almost kind of made by committee, well, literally made by committee, and there was a lot, I think there was a lot of internal politicking between Kevin Feige and Isaac Perlmutter and all the other people involved that overshadowed the making of these movies which is now technically not going to be a thing but I'm not sure that having Faggy just have all the control is a better system I guess we'll see
0: I think that there have been several incidents that are maybe changing things in terms of the kind of people they want to employ, I mean look at what happened with Fantastic Four which was very clearly I think, well one it was I want to hold on to the rights to this series but it was also we want this movie to be a specific way which is why we're going to cut it to pieces, even for the film that Josh Trank is trying to make is, you know, very clearly going off those rails. But also if you look at the directors that have been hired for all the Star Wars movies, Colin Trevorrow aside, you've got, you know, Rian Johnson and Gareth Edwards and the Lord and Miller pair who made the Lego movie. You know, they're actually beginning to hire, they're still hiring white men, but they're hiring people that have at least their own recognizable style and attitude to making these kind of films. And letting them use it. Yeah, I mean, they've hired Phil Lord and Christopher Miller to do a Han Solo movie. So you can tell that that is at least a case of we've confined the right people for the material, but we're at least going to let them do the material the way they need to. I mean, Mm -hmm. maybe they won't. We don't know. That movie hasn't even been written yet as far as I know. But there's an expectation there when you pick certain people. So I'm hoping that at least they will start hiring some more women and people of color, and because you know those directors are there, and statistically speaking, the budget of a woman a woman directed movie is you know like ten times less than that of the average male directed film because they're just not being given these studio chances. Mm-hmm. And I would Which- like them to actually direct not just the film with the women in it or the film with the people of color in them. It's a nice start, but you know, like Ava DuVernay would have been just as capable of directing. The Avengers, as she would have been Black Panther, right. I'm actually kind of sad that she isn't directing that movie because I love the idea of a really explicitly political Black Panther movie
4: mm-hmm.
0: written by Tana Coates. But we're we're not going to get that. It's going to be an exceptionally watered down idea, which is a shame because Chadwick Boseman deserves nothing but the best.
2: Right. I mean, at least uh, Michelle, it's Michelle Monaghan who is who is on deck to direct Wonder Woman, right?
0: She's still... She has that. been kicked off the project. But of she course. wasn't kicked off. She left because of... Basically, what was told was she didn't want to make the movie that DC wanted her to make, which would tie in more to the the Zack Snyder David S. Goyer stylings, mm. which I don't blame her, but apparently the person they have now picked is Patty Jenkins. Okay. Who... I believe Glass, Who she directed Monster, which is a wonderful movie, but she's she was originally supposed to direct the four sequel and then left due to quote unquote creative differences and was replaced by some guy who directs Game of Thrones. Okay. Like I, I would I hope she does well, but if the 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 stuff we were hearing after Michelle McLaren uh left the Wonder Woman Project are true it basically sounds like they want to make an, a masturbatory fantasy that ties into how wonderful Batman is. Yeah. Because Zack Snyder isn't masturbatory enough. Right. <laughs> like, There's an example of why auteur theory in these movies can sometimes be a really shitty thing. Because Man of Steel is clearly a Zack Snyder movie and it's the most abhorrent thing on film. I hated yeah. that movie so much. Yeah, Man from yeah. uncle made me. I so mean, I know that not- I was it-
2: one of the three people on the planet who liked Sucker Punch.
0: <laughs> and- really,
2: yeah, one of three? Yeah.
3: I like bits of it, so three and a half.
2: <laughs> okay, uh, sorry. Continue. I mean, I don't. I don't think it's a good movie, but I enjoyed it.
1: <laughs> Shocking revelations today on V.
0: <laughs> but the thing is, I I liked his movie of Watchmen, so you know I did too. Yeah. yeah. Like for all the crap, so much of that movie, like the slow-motion jiggly sex scene in the fire flame, which is in the comic books, so they can't even mock you that. Can, yeah. <laughs> He's an exceptionally fanboyish director, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just that the person he fanboys is Frank Miller. Right. Horrors, whores, horrors, horrors, whores, horrors, horrors, whores. Hey, have you seen that the new Frank Miller Batman comic is called The Master Race? Jesus Christ. <sighs> It's been co-written by... God, who is it who's been co-written by? It's Brian Azarello, I believe. Who started out writing a really great Wonder Woman series and then decided to turn all of the Amazons into crazy rapists. And I was like, oh, okay, screw you. That escalated. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Man, Every now and then I keep seeing news stories for Batman versus Superman and they keep talking about how they want, to, you know, this Bruce is going to be dark and haunted and tortured and yeah, he's really going to be sort of post-traumatic like a war veteran. It's like, oh wow, sorry, please tell me new? I've never heard of this hip, funky, fresh revival of Batman before. Please <laughs> tell me <laughs> right. I mean,
2: look I'm still laughing at the, the trailer it's like, look only dozens were killed in that complete destruction of Metropolis.
0: Only dozens, like that. That, that that's a lie. <laughs> I feel like Zack Snyder must be really mad at the Lego Movie because every time I see that Batman vs Superman trailer, all I hear is darkness. No <laughs> parents. <clears throat> I think for all, at least you know, for all of this sort of you know generic assembly line churning out that marvel is at risk of doing at least they seem to have a consistent plan in place Mm -hmm. dc seemed to be like i'm just gonna make shit up as we go
1: that's fine right
3: (sighs) dc how do you get tv so right and movies so wrong
1: Mm. what i loved was how long it took dc to catch up to the mcu like, normally that's like a bandwagon kind of thing, where you'd think a company like that would figure this out in a year or two, but it took them several years to be like, maybe they were waiting to see if it would crash and burn financially, but that's just the saddest, like, like just now we're getting Justice League kind of started? Really? Mm-hmm. Just well, they, now. they
0: tried to get it off the ground a long time ago, and it was going to be directed by George Miller, which post Mad Max Fury Road sounds like a great idea. I know. I think they've talked about doing it again and maybe getting hold of him, but I
1: feel like it's just going to be Snyder here on out. I I had heard that, and I want much better things for George Miller at this point.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> you have so much. Let to him off the for. leash. Let's just you know let him have
0: some fun.
3: But speaking of DC TV, are we going to think Supergirl is going to be good or Crash and Burn?
0: I hope it's good. I think it's really interesting that you have that variety of something that's more like a kind of... It, it harkens back to the kind of Lewis and Clark TV show, you know? Mm-hmm. I would like it to be good. If I, I think it's, it's... going to get a lot of nasty think pieces about oh wow, this is just so girly and insulting. It's just, you know, screw you. There were
2: those think pieces happened after the trailer last spring.
1: Ugh. Well, I think people are a little... Was it... Uh... They're a little wary because of the uh, was it the Ally McBeal style Wonder Woman oh, script yeah. possibly where it was like she sits and eats ice cream and cries or whatever. And... Have you
0: seen that pilot?
1: Oh, so it's a real pilot. It's not just oh, no. a yeah. oh, yeah. That's
0: yeah. the that's the Adrian Pelicky one. Yeah.
1: one. Yeah, and
0: is which it? is it's by um, yeah. what's his face David E. Kelly who did so yeah. Ally it's literally. So Ali McBeal. Was Ally yeah
1: literally
0: yeah yeah. it's a really it's clearly made by someone who's never actually read a wonder woman comic before
1: i'm just saying i can see how people would be scared with supergirl like there that was in the fairly recent past and i am my surprise there is that they didn't go forward with it i i did not expect cooler heads to prevail on on that one i fully expected that to go forward
3: So I'm going to link in the show notes SF Debris' review of it, of the full pilot. And it was, I watched that. I didn't watch the pilot, so I watched it with kind of a voiceover. It was bad. Not only did she have like three secret identities going down because she was Wonder Woman and then she was Diana Price, CEO of a Wonder Woman marketing corporation. And then she was Diana something else, you know, average girl living in average life.
0: Yeah, she goes home to her cats and she watches TV and eats ice cream and cries because that's all us women want to do at the end you of the were... day. Am I right, ladies? I just—it's a movie that casts a villain as Elizabeth Harley. Oh, pilot, what, I should say. What kind of ice cream? Though? That is important. <laughs> oh, I cannot remember. It's—it's a strange pilot. I mean, it makes a lot of sense when you find out it was
1: NBC. <laughs> So so I heard, I think you did too, Kayleigh. We heard this morning that Brian Fuller is bringing Amazing Stories back. Yep. To NBC. Not sure how I feel about that.
0: Like, I'm excited that Brian Fuller is getting work, and I'm glad that NBC at least see him as a valuable asset. But can they just let him do his own thing, please? Actually, I feel like Amazing Stories is kind of his own thing, but this feels to me like they've seen the, the kind of anthology way of, you know, TV that's sprung up a lot over the past couple of years particularly with people like Ryan Murphy and they thought, "Hmm, we're several years late to this trend again, but we really should get on
1: it." Well, other than um Black Mirror, it it is a little different to have every single episode be unrelated as opposed to a single season. That is true continuity. Mm-hmm. That that is a little bit different and uh people have not had good luck with those the last couple of decades trying to revive that kind of thing. I mean, I do think that would be interesting and you know, he's got just an amazing pool of actors to pull from. Oh, come on, just come on in and do one hour episode. It'll just Mm -hmm. take, you know, a couple of weeks. It'll be fine. Just come on in. He could, he could pull in so many people.
3: We're going to get Lee pace and I will watch that episode. (laughs) Yeah.
0: You can't avoid him forever, Lee. (laughs) I'd be interested to see if it works. I mean, it's NBC, so once again, I don't have a lot of hope. But then again, I said that about Hannibal. so I'm just glad Brian Fuller's getting work. He deserves it. He's been screwed around too
1: often. He's got American Gods. I didn't realize he was able to work on other things at the same time as American Gods.
0: Yeah, it's quite I was su-
1: for a lot of showrunners to do that. So I was surprised to hear that he was going to be able to do this. And as a friend of mine, the friend who told me about it said, "You know, now we know why he was so pleasant on the day Hannibal was canceled." In his, oh NBC's so great! Don't blame them. It's totally oh, cool. They gave us three years. That mm. is
0: true. And in fairness, NBC did give them three years if that show had been on any other major network. It wouldn't have gotten that. The reason NBC kept it on is because it gave them critical cred. They didn't pay for most of the show, and they had literally nothing else to
1: replace it with. In DC, it's not like we have anything else. (laughs) (laughs) I said that multiple times. Apparently, that new show, The Player, has just gone down in flames. Blind Spot is not good, I hear, and I don't know if it's doing well separately from that. Heroes is apparently a garbage fire. Oh, people I- amazing- I- <laughs> <laughs> I- <laughs> were hilarious, by the way. I-09 yesterday was like, fuck this. I'm not even going to tell you what happened. I'm just going to talk about how terrible it is. Like, it's just a total garbage fire. And I was like, I'm, I'm kind of upset that NBC would even do amazing stories because I really liked that as a kid, like in, I guess it was the 80s. And I'm like, I wasn't going to come back to this network, okay? Like, don't make me know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're on notice, okay? I don't, I'm still mad at you. We're still on the no contact, delete the Facebook stage of our relationship, NBC. I'm not talking to you.
2: I sat down to watch the pilot of Heroes, and I was sick. And I tweeted after about an hour. It was a two hour pilot. I tweeted after about an hour. Well, Heroes is still a steaming pile of crap and it's really boring. And Ten minutes later, my roommate could hear me snoring on the couch.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Didn't Brian Fuller work on that the first season, though? And then he yes. walked off it and
0: it went straight to hell. And it went straight to hell. Yeah. And what happened, yeah. I think, was he had, I think after Pushing Daisies got cancelled, he signed an exclusivity deal with NBC to work on any of their shows. And I think he's friends with a lot of people who work on Heroes. So he wrote a lot of their episodes and the re- the ones he wrote, are the ones that have like a lot of critical and fan cred. Like, I think one of the ones he wrote is
1: generally considered one of the
0: best. He didn't yeah. say because he no. was like, I'd quite like to make my own shows now,
1: and then that show just kind of went, you know. What Apparently, the fuck? he specifically had a a gay character that they insisted on straight washing, and that was yeah. very upsetting. And that was it was the Hayden Panettiere friend character, yeah, the and he was that was very upsetting and I think that's not even the first time a network had done that to him I think Showtime must have done it to him and so that was one of the reasons I I heard that he he left that and wow he made up for it with Hannibal so
3: was the Showtime one uh the main character's dad in Dead Like Me
1: I think so I think that was the story he told yeah yeah, he had a really
0: acrimonious split with Dead Like Me. I believe he left, like, three episodes in.
1: Yeah. Oh, sh- I didn't realize how soon that was. Yikes. I mean, just, it, it's interesting how there, there's kind of a floating theme going on here, which is that people want things, but because it's an audience that the powers that be choose to not understand, they refuse to give people those things. Mm-hmm. And and here I'm I'm talking more about the idea of, of gay representation that has has come in, but I, I mean I just find that so fascinating that it's like why people want to see this why won't you give it to them they want to give you their money I why okay.
0: I think for a lot of them, particularly in sort of studio heads, those stories are only worthy to them in the sense that it might get them progressive cred and awards. Because mm-hmm. look at what's happening this year with, you know, the main Oscar race. You've got The Danish Girl, which is the Tom paper Eddie Redmayne movie about Lily Elbe, the first um, trans woman to go through gender reassignment surgery. That role is played by a man. But then you have something like Tangerine, which is a film that's come out this year, which is about two trans women of colour who are sex workers who are actually played by trans women of colour who were sex workers and they got you know great reviews and the film's done really well for an indie and they're actually giving it an Oscar campaign but you know it's not going to take you know Eddie Redmayne's going to get that nomination before they will because to them it's seen as more of a feat of worthiness mm-hmm. which is absolute bullshit and it's incredibly regressive and insulting and it's a nasty attitude that permeates not just through allies of the LGBTQ community, but the community itself—it's not enough for the like. Look like as well, what happened with uh, Roland Emmerich and his Stonewall movie? You know, he wanted to make a movie that you know people who don't like gay people would want to go see,
1: right? <laughs> like, wh- didn't seem to understand that it. it didn't matter. They weren't going to go see it. Like, what? Why? What? I, I mean, I heard that too, but you just kind of go.
0: I feel like that was a cheap excuse for him to justify replacing Marsha P. Johnson, and Sylvia Rivera, with a self-insert Abercrombie and Fitch model mm-hmm. <laughs> who just seems to cr- who literally cries every time he has sex with another man.
1: What, really? Yeah, yeah. there's like
0: several scenes apparently in that movie where he is receiving blowjobs or having sex and he's just crying. It's a really weirdly regressive and conservative movie in regards to gay sex, from what I've been told from f- friends and critics
1: I trust. I, I just realized that you can't hear my face. <laughs> you can actually. Oh, we can, though. We can hear, hear the look on my face. I it's...
4: can't hear my face when I'm with you.
2: <laughs> Sorry. Uh,
1: it's but kind of a serious palace that... cat kind of thing going. <laughs>
0: We just tend to imagine Pal's cat of view most times anyway, so no, but yeah, this was the thing about the Stonewall movie. You know, for those of you who don't know the history of the Stonewall riots, the first brick was thrown by a trans woman of colour called Marsha P. Johnson. In the movie of Stonewall a lovely gay black man hands the brick to the nice, pretty, white, cisgender gay boy who seems really muscled, despite the fact that he never seems to work out and came from some farm in the Midwest. And he throws the brick. And once the rides are over, they're basically all hopping around the streets going, yay, we've got rights now. It's like... you it, <laughs> it, it, really not it, what it, happened. <laughs> so not only are you smudging out a really key part of history that a lot of people aren't even aware of and the fact that it is a gay man that did this as well is what makes it even more insulting but you're trying to justify it with some claim that well this will make it more comfortable for the people I want to see the movie here are the people who are never going to see this movie in the first place because they already think that I'm evil and terrible and deserve to die right and that movie flopped fucking hard and rightly so
1: like why if you're not going to tell the story why are you trying to tell the story mm mm-hmm
0: well, that's the that bugs me about it ties not just Stonewall but with um, the Danish girl casting is if you don't want to tell that story right with the people that it affects the most why do you feel that story is worth telling in the first place? Like if you're not going to tell a story about a bunch of trans women starting a riot then it's not your story to tell and I'm not saying that like you know Roland Emmerich couldn't have directed that movie but the movie that he wanted to make is not the story that needed to be told that was pure masturbation, what he wanted
3: it's like what's that story about the movie executive when they were trying to get a Superman movie made? It's like, well, he can't fly, he can't wear a cape and he can have a Superman right like then you're not making a Superman movie like what is that even
0: that said uh, John Peters, who was um if you've never seen the Kevin Smith live where he talks about going to meet the, uh, John Peters, about writing the Superman movie, the one that Tim Burton was originally going to make with Nicolas Cage. It is. Have <laughs> you seen the pictures from that? You'll never <laughs> it. yeah. There's actually a documentary that's just come out called The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened? And it talks about you know everything that movie was going to be before it got cancelled. So, yeah, I mean, it's worth looking up just for that picture of the mulleted Nicolas Cage as Superman. It will haunt your dreams.
3: I've never wanted a Nicolas Cage Superman with like Tom Hiddleston Loki hair. What? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Remember, they were trying to get a Justice League thing going at that time, so it would have been, you know, Nicolas Cage's Superman. Who was Batman at that time? Was it Michael Keaton or was it Val Kilmer? What year was it? Um, 96, 97, I think. Uh, that was Val. Right. So you had Val just-
2: moving into Clooney.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, could you imagine if Clooney had been tied into a multi-film deal for Batman and the Justice League?
2: Mal <laughs> never would have married him then.
0: <laughs> so, do you think this movie is going to make its, its Crimson Peak? To tie it back to our original topic, <laughs> <laughs> what? Remember when what we he? had one of those? Um, do you think the, domest- the, the, the domestic box office will pick up, or do you think that it's really going to have to rely on foreign? Money, because if this movie doesn't get it to China, that is going to be a big problem. And I think it will just be used as an excuse to not make these kind of movies anymore. I mean, look at the amount of movies that Guillermo del Toro has started planning to make that have then been cancelled.
1: Yeah, and he's video games. As to well. make a Pacific Rim sequel, and and I think that's now been.
0: Canceled. Can we just
3: get Guillermo del Toro a Patreon account?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god,
0: that would that would be the most highly donated to patreon ever
1: i think i i don't know that it's gonna make its domestic back and i i think it's gonna have to rely on home video at at best i mean i have been yelling about it but i have like only so many followers like i i can't do i can't do everything around here (laughs) (laughs) i i am not a substitute for a
2: I mean well, right now they're at 32 million and their budget was 55
1: before you even get into marketing yeah yeah, which they apparently did, did spend money on they just didn't do it efficiently I guess yeah. people were telling me they were seeing crimson peak ads all over the place and were kind of sick of them they just weren't aimed the way they needed to be the, the tone or the audience they were really trying to get horror dude fans and I mean, I would like to say if they had marketed to multiple demographics, it would be nice to say we are assuming that horror dude bro fans will also enjoy this. And we are not going to assume they can't enjoy it. We're going to be open about that, but it was much more we're closed off to the female audience. If they had... It could have been inclusive towards men, but it was excluding women almost. i I don't know why would you not uh, I don't' I,
0: that's funny. I don't even I'm not even like surprised anymore because this keeps happening, but I'm always in, just increasingly disappointed.
1: Mm-hmm. We're not mad. we're just disappointed. <laughs> yeah. We're a little bit mad. <laughs> well, a little bit. I mean, I just saw a tweet the other day from someone who's a, a box office analyst who said, Can universe should Universal be blamed for Crimson Peak failing? Like it's already a given that it's a failure.
0: That's the problem and the movie being reduced to an opening weekend.
1: Yeah. That that is part of it. And like I know that Mad Max did fairly well, but not as strong as maybe people had hoped. But it held on for multiple weekends. And it had very relatively low drops and it was like a medium sized, you know, kind of hit. And I think it probably has done very well on home video and it kind of sank its hooks in culturally in a way that you can't buy. Like you can't, you can't pay for that. No. Witness me. And, you know, it, it immediately, hit with people. And The Matrix was a similar thing. It worked its way into pop culture, even if it didn't necessarily make the money at the box office. I don't know if Crimson Peak can do that. Maybe Pacific Rim did a little bit. I mean, like, people still talk about Jaegers, you know? Yeah. They still make Jaeger jokes. And the the Mako Mori test. And I I think it did kind of have some effect. Maybe Crimson Peak will. Maybe it won't. It's an R-rated movie with a lot of incest. I mean... (laughs) Uh, I, there is a certain limitation. It's, it's like Brian Fuller would say about Hannibal. We always had a limited audience because it's a really (laughs) gory show about cannibalism. Like real talk here, we have kind of self-limited the audience. So I I think Crimson Peak is kind of, I don't know though. I mean, I was re-listening to our, vampire the vampire episode i was on and we talked about how dracula an r-rated movie coppola's dracula made 70 million dollars the first weekend mm-hmm. granted that's a very famous property and involved some of the moment younger actors i mean i i don't know uh, and
2: i mean 1992 is just a different era there are, there is less to choose from
1: and it was a different economy, and
0: and 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 yeah. But I think there's also something as you mentioned. Your know, Dracula had very big of the na- of the moment names in its cast. But if you look at something like um, your know, Crimson Peak has Tom Hiddleston. Tom Hiddleston can help you get your tiny indie movie funded. He's not necessarily going to be a big draw even with the fan base that he has. I think we've moved beyond having a list actors. In the sense of opening that movie, you know, Chris Pratt didn't make Jurassic World a hit. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you look at all the actors in in the Marvel movies, some of them are relatively recognizable names, and obviously Robert Downey Jr. has become inextricably tied to that series and is getting a lot of money from it. But the average Marvel contract is not a lot of money, and they're not putting those names at the top to get people through the doors. We don't really have that anymore. The name of the franchise
1: sells more than the name of the actor. And this isn't a franchise right it's an unknown i mean it it's an original property in that yes it draws from a lot of older inspirations but it's the way inception was an original property it's it's an original story that is not a comic book a novel a tv show something from the 80s you grew up with it's not a toy it's not not legos it's not well, the Gem movie is, is bombing. But I understand, oh, the yeah. behind, <laughs> I understand the theory behind that, you know. Man, if you can't get me to go see Gem, you can't get shit to go see Gem, okay?
2: Word, word. <laughs> this is just proof that Cleo and I are like exactly the same age.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Your reviews
2: for
0: that movie have been very, very entertaining, for, But always, oh, yeah. almost like depressingly so. Like that movie was made by a bunch of people who googled what millennial means and were like, "Yeah,
2: hip, cool. Woo. We can do that." Yeah, get that on the YouTube, the chat. right? YouTube emojis, I guess.
0: Something. Do the
1: thing. Yeah.
0: Put it on the face place.
1: <laughs> if somebody had made a movie that felt like the opening credits of the TV show that would have been amazing because the opening credits were very different from like, like the theme song and everything that mm-hmm. was very different from like the very gentle, happy, you know, I, it was a very like 1990. We love the environment girl power kind of movie, movie, a uh, TV show. Yeah. Very gentle and supportive and positive And it always had like a lesson at the end or whatever. But like the first 30 seconds looked like so much fun driving around and You know, hot cars and being rock stars and, you know, if they'd made a movie that looked like that. That's another franchise I don't think I could have talked Kristen into doing eyeshadow for, but I would have loved to.
4: (laughs) I would have loved it. Oh, my
1: God. I would have loved it. Oh, my God. She's a little older than me. She didn't grow up at the exact same point you and I did. Yeah. So she's not going to be like, Gem! She's going to be like, what? What is that? Yeah.
2: Man, cartoons in the mid-80s. Kids today, they don't know what they're missing.
1: And She-Ra, okay? Fucking She-Ra. Yes. Yes. Where is our She-Ra movie? Do we want to (laughs)
2: risk that? No! No, we don't, because they're just going to fuck it up.
0: Probably. Probably. For examples
3: of movies ruining your childhood, see Dragon Ball Z.
0: (laughs) No, don't. Don't subject
2: yourself to that. I watched it on a plane. I watched the first half of it on a plane. (laughs) No, for examples of movies ruining your childhood, please see Transformers.
1: See, I'm going suckers. I didn't care about that. Uh Uh No, I was... I... (laughs) I didn't
2: pay for the first one, and somebody else bought me Indian food to eat while we watched it.
1: I was so mad. And you want to talk about ruining your childhood, Bronies? <laughs> yeah, not even My Little Pony itself. What it blew up into? Yep. Oh man. That that to me is actually kind of ties back to what we're
0: talking about. How studios and companies and stuff only seem to want a particular demographic. Look at the way that the Brony demographic was so prized above the demographic of, you know, the little girls who the show was made for. Mm -hmm. Even though those bronies became progressively more hostile, more disgusting, had to be explicitly told not to write rape fan fiction involving a pony made by a kid for his Make-A-Wish gift, and then they did it anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, these guys who are grown-ass men who have made these communities and potential safe spaces for young girls to share their love of this show completely and irrevocably toxic yep I mean I would argue that, that Sailor Moon has that to an extent as well for you know anime fandom is, is kind of a different ballpark in many ways mm-hmm.
2: yep and then they get pissed off when things like God, these coloring books are
1: like they, they're made for children I've seen that yeah uh-huh. uh,
3: they don't know their audience
1: no you know they, they they're do. trying to It's not you.
0: (laughs) It's an invasion of areas where, oh my god, women actually like certain things, but it's not enough. How dare you try and spoil this thing for me, the man. But I've seen this kind of happening with um, the Steven Universe fandom, which is almost exclusively women, who are writing really fascinating, interesting insights into the show. And you're already getting the kickback of, oh my god, look at these women in this show. How dare they? And these are the same guys that watch Adventure Time, by the way.
1: I think this kind of relates back to the Crimson Peak thing of I don't understand why women would be into this movie. It's not that we're saying dudes can't like My Little Pony. We're not saying there's like strict gender demarcations of what you can and can't like. But it's the sense of if this is the natural audience for something, be respectful of that and enjoy it alongside other people and don't demand that it be retrofitted to your specific tastes and like don't don't do that it would have been really cool if tons of guys had been into my little pony and had been supportive of little girls and other women and it had been more harmonious and i mean that could have been a great way to break down some gender boundaries but Mm -hmm. no it turned into i want to write rape fanfic and how dare you tell me what to do and this is what it it needs to be because i say so Like, that's just horrific. And you keep seeing that in a number of fandoms. And, you know, what's interesting is uh, dudes did not try to take over Twilight by any means. Mm -hmm. They were obviously very hostile to it. But I remember the first year that Twilight was at Comic-Con, people were so mad that they would dare step foot, that these girls would come to Comic-Con. And that would have been about seven years ago. Good God. Seven (laughs) years ago now. And now it's kind of accepted that there's going to be more women there. Mm -hmm. And I I think particularly because comic book movies have drawn such large female audiences, I think people expect it more. But back in the day, people were so pissed that these little Twilight girls would show up at their dude convention. I remember
0: when that first happened, Kevin Smith was holding his panel and he mentioned Twilight and started booing. He says, come on, guys, you're in a room full of people dressed up as Chewbacca and Spock pointing at girls and going, look at those fucking geeks. (laughs) And it's true, like, of course there's girls that are going to be geeks for that kind of thing. There are geeks for everything. They're not invading your space by coming here to fan their thing. What you're doing is trying to shove them out of that space because you've declared that your thing is more worthy of it. Well, and then
1: what's so funny is that there are so many of these, the guys in the same demographic, who then whine that they don't know how to meet women and can't talk to them. And I'm like, so you want to make sure that women don't come to this place you like to congregate at.
2: Right. So, you complain about women pretending to be geeks just to get with you. But they don't. But they don't. So. And then you complain that nobody
1: will talk to you. And it's just, I don't know, it's like Like, gatekeeping is a form of ego boost. its It's a kind of, I mean, it's a kind of self-sabotage. It's a kind of, you know, I'll... Make myself feel superior at the expense of being happy almost.
2: Yeah, I know that you're you're not actually gonna talk to me, so I'm going to say that you're just trying to pretending to be a geek to get with me, and that's not cool. So I'm gonna not talk to you first to prove that like, dudes, dudes, when you talk this out to its logical conclusion, you don't make any sense.
1: The other thing, I mean, back with Crimson Peak is that <clears throat> rather than say, I don't understand why girls would like this. Why don't you go, let's take it at face value that girls like this. Tell mm-hmm. me why. Tell me why. What do we have in common then that we both are interested in this? And I mean, it was like me saying, go on a date. You know, this is a great date movie. I'm telling you. I mean, ask me why if you don't understand why. Just trust me on this. Okay? Just just go. Just Ask out a nice guy or a nice girl and you know, trust me.
3: For the same reason. Men walked up to Franklin Jella and said we had so much sex after
0: seeing your play.
1: <laughs> what was that line in Ed Wood where if you want to make out with a young lady, take her to Dracula? I mean mm-hmm. Bella Lagosi got it. Yeah. <laughs> in in many ways, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I was wide
0: open you had to score that goal. I had to but that's what sort of one of the things that's really kind of astounding about this but why do you like this kind of thing is it surely it should be imperative not just if you're in the entertainment industry but in general for you to try and at least on some level understand why something that you don't like or don't disagree with or find really strange or whatever at least understand why it is such an important thing or such a enjoyable thing for so many other people we're not asking you to sit and watch you know every gothic romance with us but it would be interesting if you could at least watch one and take time to think well well this would maybe appeal to this and this and if some and if you're running a studio it would be really great if you could do that too what, what we're, we're, sick to, we're sick of tortured male genius movies okay yes
2: yes we're sick of tortured male genius TV shows too
3: Aaron um wins
2: Aaron Sor- God, Aaron Sorkin.
0: Has anyone seen the Steve Jobs movie yet?
2: No. no, I, no. Have, I, know. I
0: have better... I have belly
1: button that needs contemplating. <laughs> I don't have time. I, I just don't understand why... Uh, this is probably like, why don't I just take it at face value that somebody would be interested in this? Why do I have to ask why? Why would I want to see a movie about Steve Jobs? Like, I just don't, uh, on the face of it, don't understand why... I... I mean...
2: And this is not really the episode to get into my song of Aaron Sorkin. I'm just so disappointed in you. But from all reports, it's not even really a movie about Steve Jobs. It's a movie about a guy who's kind of like Steve Jobs, but don't let the truth get in the way of the little story that Aaron Sorkin wants
1: to tell. That was a big problem with the social network, too. Yeah, Yeah, that's, that's a
2: constant problem with Aaron Sorkin in general.
1: I review,
0: um, I want to say it was the AV Club's review. I think it was Ignati Vishnevetsky who said it. Was that right, Alina? Close enough. Okay. Uh, but he <laughs> talked about this isn't necessarily a movie about Steve Jobs. It's probably the closest we're ever going to get to an autobiography of Aaron Sarkin. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. It's the portrait of a douchebag as a young man. Okay, I get yeah. that.
2: Yeah. And Pop Culture Happy Hour brought that that up, too. And I think we're quoting the same review.
0: It probably is, actually. I did and watch the AV Club's review as well. I might have confused it too. Um, I, I understand what people would want to see of Steve Jobs' movie. I think it would be worth puncturing the image, of, the deified image of Steve Jobs. And from what I understand, the Alex Gibney documentary does that.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't think Aaron Sarkin is the right choice when you need to kind of destroy that image. I think he's a little too... Oh, Aaron Sorkin is ab- far
2: too far, uh, far way too far up his
0: own ass. I was reading another review of it, and someone the structure of the movie is it's a free it's like a free part play and it's yeah. the beginning of the like before the presentations of free of the sort of defining parts of his career. So there's the first like Apple presentation, then there's the company that he started after he got sacked from Apple, then it's the presentation of the iMac, mm-hmm. and that's an interesting structure. But the entire thing. Apparently, every structure is basically Kate Winslet comes in and says, why aren't you a good father and goes away? And then Jeff Daniels comes in and is, well, I'm the father figure in your life that you have. What's what's it like being adopted, Steve Jobs? And then goes away. And then Steve Wozniak and Seth Rogen walks in and says, you know, you can be a nice guy and a genius at the same time and then walks out. And that's basically it. Yeah, That's what I'd read about it.
1: And I was like, why? Why do I care about this? I really don't. I really don't. Okay. From what I understand, a lot of people didn't care about it because originally, <laughs> the
0: was, well, originally it was supposed to be David Fincher directed and starring. Was it Leonardo DiCaprio first or Christian Bale first? <laughs> I know Christian Bale was involved, right? Because <laughs> I think they approached both of them. Because obviously, this is for them kind of seen as the Oscar Beatty film, and then there was the big fallout, and it's basically documented in all the Sony emails. But there was, you know, big fallout regarding the script and the implications of making a movie this soon after the guy has died and his family are all there to see it. So they And directing Sorkin is difficult.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, that's dialogue you have to have a firm grasp on. And from the looks of the reviews, Danny Boyle, as wonderful a director as he is, doesn't have mm-hmm. that grasp.
1: Yeah, the thing about the social network to me was that I really liked that movie. I as a story unto itself i really liked it and i like a lot of david fincher's work but when i then found out that mark zuckerberg has been with the same girlfriend and and has now married her and was had a girlfriend through that entire storyline i was like then your entire thesis that he did this because of it just falls apart i'm like right then this makes no sense at all. Right. Why why is that what you pinned this on? That great Rooney Mara speech about, you know, it's because no, it's because you're actually an asshole. I'm like, then that didn't that's not mm-hmm. who he None is at happened.
4: all.
0: Right. Why but
2: that truth would have gotten in the way of Sorkin's little story, so
0: yeah. yeah. But all of his stories then seem to be defined as this poor man can't get over the lady person. Or in the case of what seems to happen with Steve Jobs is this poor man can't get over the adoption and the daughter he never wants to acknowledge. For someone it's, who is such blatantly a, not true. Yeah, for someone who is so, you know, skillful and often very acrobatic with his dialogue, he doesn't really have anything to pin it on. And I think they got away with it in The Social Network because David Fincher is an exceptionally controlled director. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the multiple takes, you know, madness of working on that movie... They pay off in that aspect but I don't I feel like Danny Boyle I think was brought in pretty much at the last minute it was really a case of let's get a decent name who is available mm-hmm. and Danny Boyle is a wonderful director but he's not really a dialogue focused kind of filmmaker look at something like Shallow Grave that is all about the character and the mood and the the gross out terror or something even like you know Train Spotting or even Slumdog Millionaire that's not about the dialogue I feel like Sorkin wanted to direct it himself, but they wouldn't let him.
2: Yeah, and they really should not ever, ever.
0: No. And now no. I'm just imagining a Fifty Shades movie that's Sorkin and E.L. James going at it, just like fighting for creative control. <laughs> I would watch the behind the scenes movie of that. I, just... I will. I will say regarding Steve Jobs, I cannot take Fassbender's face seriously since Kyle Colgren said he was handsome. Ryan Styles. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Cannot unsee. I just that, uh, j- just from seeing brief cl- I, 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 that casting does not work for me at all. It no. does not. That was a that was a last
0: minute piece of casting though. But, but then again, I can't see it working with DiCaprio. I can potentially see it working with Bale, maybe. Uh, no, DiCaprio. DiCaprio doesn't.
2: DiCaprio is always DiCaprio in his roles. DiCaprio as somebody. Not He doesn't disappear in, and that would be really distracting for a real person who we've all seen in recent memory. It works for Hughes, kind of, I guess, because there's basically no one living who's seen him. You know what I'm saying? I'm not sure what I'm saying. Yeah,
1: no, I, I understand, because even though he still seemed like DiCaprio playing Hughes, I at least didn't have... I I didn't really have a, a vision of Hughes to to keep in mind, but like right. like Christian Bale, I'm I'm concerned. He probably could have managed it just by doing something horrible to his body. Like mm-hmm. I <laughs> I worry about that boy sometimes, and I, I don't think I would have wanted to watch him try to do that. He probably mm-hmm. would have like actually plucked his hair out to get the receding hairline, and yeah, you know.
0: There's an amazing story about Michael Fassbender when he was at drama school, and it was told by Tom Hardy because they went to drama school together. And Fassbender was like the proper method actor that everyone knew was going to be big, and he was queuing in the lunch hall, playing like practicing as some, I think, disabled man or mentally disabled person, and was taking was was blocking up the lunch queue basically. So eventually, Tom Hardy just shouted, "For fuck's sake, Mikey, got on with it!"
1: I like Tom Hardy. We all (laughs) love Tom Hardy. As if I
2: couldn't love that man more, and yet...
1: Have you seen the story on Tumblr about how he rescued a kitten in, like, Romania? Yeah, And and that kitten was God's own child, and...
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The thing about any actor trying to look like Jobs is, after Ashton Kutcher, why bother?
1: (laughs) Amazingly, but yes. Yeah. Like,
3: you're not gonna look any more like Jobs than Astrid Kutcher look like Jobs, so just don't try.
2: Right.
1: And is it not embarrassing? Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it should be. <laughs> we all know that Leo
0: is gonna put all of his Oscar efforts into The Revenant anyway. That man has <laughs> suffered for his art.
2: He has suffered for his art, and the Best, best Actor race is over, and has been over since July. And it's gonna go to someone else. <laughs> yes it's been over since july since mr holmes came out ian mckellen played sherlock holmes with dementia it's done it's over
1: go home don't <laughs> submit are they, are they even going to remember that when i'm sure of it will will harvey weinstein or whatever will he allow that to i mean i always kind of go okay who bought it this year who bought the award well, that's what's really interesting to me about this
0: current race. And I think if we do an Oscar episode, we'll talk a little bit more about it. But the best actor race this year is chock full of actors who not only have really meaty roles, but full of, but they really want to campaign for it. Like Michael Keaton might get another nomination this year for Spotlight, the film about the, the Boston Globes reporting into the Catholic Church's mm-hmm. sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got Eddie Redmayne, who is Gollum Levels Desperate. There's Leo DiCaprio. You just there's want Michael Fassbender. One. Yeah, but he'll want to go two in a row like Tom Hanks. You've got Tom <laughs> Hanks who's got Bridge of Spies. Mm-hmm. There's a whole, you know, queue of actors who are pretty much all white men, as far as I know. I don't think there's anyone else in that one. But they all really, really want it. You've got Ben Foster for the program, who has been like really insane promoting that movie. Yep, Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp for Black Mass. Yep. Well, he's claimed that he doesn't want it, but I bet you're going to see him at every Oscar party. Yeah, right. <laughs> he's
2: I mean, of that crew, I suspect that Tom Hanks would probably be
0: like, "Meh, whatever." I'm Tom Hanks. I mean, he's just there for the party. I don't think yeah. he really cares. He's already got to. But even then, you know, if you look at those that queue of actors, They're going to fight for it, and I think that that's a far more worthy way of doing it. Like, if you want an Oscar, go fight for your Oscar. Don't do that whole, oh, it's just an honor to be nominated and I'm in it for the work while you're shaking every hand and getting Harvey Weinstein's phone number on speed dial. Like, that was what bugged me about Bradley Cooper three years in a row. You know, he really wants his Oscar, but he's trying to hide it behind this sort of humility. No, just go get it, you mediocre little man. Yeah. I don't think he's going to get it for Aloha this year. You know, I'm just... No, but he might get it for Burnt. No, the reviews for
1: that have been terrible.
2: Okay, good.
1: Someone said, why don't you just call it American Chef? Like, why don't you just add <laughs> $10 million to the gross and just call it American Chef?
0: Yeah, I'm kind of stunned by that. I'm, I'm trying. What films does Harvey Weinstein have this year? Do we know?
3: The, I'm assuming Joy. It looks like something he'd have. And it has Jennifer Oh, Weinstein. that, that Wait,
0: is. Yeah, yeah, it is. That's not his. That's not his fault. That's Megan Ellison's. Okay. Because it was the story. About. Oh, wait. Oh, Bradley Cooper does have joy, doesn't he? Oh, shit. But anyway, there was a story that. Um, <laughs> the list of
2: Kaylee's nemeses is amazing. <laughs> but
0: uh, there was a story about. Harvey Weinstein coming on the set of Joy to visit Jennifer Lawrence because he's worked with her before and his friends of her and David O'Russell basically threw this fit and they had this like big screaming match on set and this rumour was so prevalent that Jennifer Lawrence had to go onto her Facebook page and deny it I'd have paid to see that though Weinstein Company this year has burnt, sorry Bradley not going to happen, Carol, which will happen, Mm -hmm. and hateful late and Macbeth and the Macbeth, yeah, that's true. So Fassbender's going to fight hard because the rumor is he was really pissed off he didn't get nominated for Shame. So, you know, boy wants it. Mm. Go get it, you prick! I don't care. <laughs> like if he does get nominated, he might crawl higher up my nemesis list. But you I, know, I the the
2: rumors of him being abusive to female co stars.
1: Yeah. I didn't hear about any of those until after I saw Jane Eyre.
3: But Jane Eyre is also around the time when the rumors of him assaulting his girlfriend were.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Like, beating her so hard, her ovary cracks. I, uh, I, having had some ovary problems, ouch, uh, no, I I know. And I, I really stopped watching a lot of his stuff after that and I just kinda went But I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I didn't know at that point. That's kinda the watershed and I was like, No, let me let me keep that one. Please, let me keep that one. But
3: as I said, it's a little easier because honestly, like Rochester's an asshole I
0: hate anyway, so I'm
1: fine with it.
3: You <laughs> can be played by an asshole actor I don't like either.
0: Like, in terms of the the loving problematic things dance that we do with pretty much everything we consume in pop culture, I do try to not consume work by Rumoured My Wife Beaters. But, you know, by still watching Glorious Bastards. I've still seen a number of Josh Brolin movies. I really like Vicky Christina Barcelona, but you know, I've never paid to watch it. <laughs>
4: mm-hmm.
0: There's a really great episode of Bojack Horseman, which is on Netflix, where the, f- the lead female character talks about you know men in Hollywood who have done terrible things but still get work and she mentions like a fictional character in the, the universe of the show who's rumoured to have been abusive towards his female staff. He's kind of like a Bill Cosby stand-in. And immediately, everyone starts attacking her and claiming, you know, how dare you do this to this national treasure? How dare you try and besmirch his name or trying to ruin his life, you whore? And then she ends up meeting the guy, and he basically says... You know, I can do what I want and you'll never be able to stop me. And it's a really horribly dark moment, but it totally hits you that that's how it works. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately she could continue that crusade to get women to speak out against him, but it's going to hurt her more than it's going to hurt him in the long run. I mean, look how many years it took to bring down Bill Cosby. Look at the fact that Woody Allen is still working. Look at the fact that Roman Polanski's never
1: been tried for what he did. You know, I think this is why I appreciate people like Guillermo del Toro and Tom Hiddleston and people who seem to be genuinely just adorable and sweet in real life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I just really, really appreciate that.
0: Yeah, I don't want to jinx it, but when you see those moments of sort of light in the darkness where someone seems genuinely happy and nice and appreciative... And enthusiastic, you you clutch onto them so hard.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, like they had the the Red Dragon convention in uh the UK, mm-hmm. you know, last weekend, and someone wrote the most wonderful post about Mads Mickelson where she said he is a cupcake of love. He is a fluffy <laughs> Danish kitten. <laughs> he was adorable and calmed people down who were having panic attacks. And gave people hugs and stayed late for all of the autograph sessions and made sure everybody who wanted to ask him something. I mean, he apparently was just a complete trooper and was so sweet to everybody. And like she said that he clearly understood what this meant to everybody. Mm-hmm. And when they had the closing ceremony, like cried. Like, oh, oh. like it's. I really appreciate that kind of, you know, because there are people who are so talented, but just so awful. And you're like, why? Why did, why did I get suckered into this? Why can't you just be nice people and we can have nice things? I don't understand. Why is this happening? So I, and Tom Hiddleston genuinely seems to be just adorable in real life. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, we've
0: had that conversation before with regards to Hannibal. You know, we've all been fans of things where being a fan of that show means that even the people involved with it are going to sort of roll your eyes, roll their eyes at you and say, Oh, I can't believe you're so invested in this thing. This is really stupid. And that didn't happen with Hannibal. Everyone involved seemed genuinely delighted to have fans, to mm-hmm. have that level of enthusiasm, to have those really interesting questions asked, to be, you know, given fan art and occasionally asked ridiculous sort of, personal stuff, but these, there was appreciation there and there was respect, and that doesn't happen very often. So when you're, you know, a fan of pop culture and it seems like not only is it never ever tailored to, in any way generally appeal to you, but you're very the very act of you liking it is often dismissed or shunned or seen as not important, when you have these incidents where a thing full of nice people that is tailored to your enjoyment... And their in, that enjoyment is reflected back at you with real appreciation and respect. No wonder people latch onto that so hard and become as passionate about it as they do. Like for all the claim, you know, all this sort of amusement at Hannibal having the fan base that it did, it was completely unsurprising to me
1: because we don't get this very often.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And what was funny is when I was searching for the Bella Lugosi quote because I, I know I had it on my Tumblr, two different posts came up and I might have reblogged one of them from one of y'all, it was Brian Fuller talking about how many women would show up cosplaying as the male characters and how it was really women that made up the most passionate fans in their audience. And when I reblogged it, I mentioned the Bella Lugosi quote. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that does kind of, in an odd way, you know, kind of tie in. But
3: Well, with Hannibal, I would say it's also because it was a show that, Is in a genre that so often fetishizes the pain and suffering of women, and Hannibal refused to do that. The show Hannibal, the show refused to do that.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, that's the point about you know women like horror, but for all of the feminine origins of horror, it has become something that is almost exclusively seen as a male domain and a misogynistic male domain at that. So we'll still watch a lot of these movies. You know, I love a lot of slasher movies. I love Friday the Thirteenth. I love the original Scream movies. I love movies where a lot of horrific things happen to women. So when I get a movie like that where that doesn't happen, you know, all the better.
1: But at the same time, I mean, when you look at the stories of the movies you just mentioned, it involves women fighting back and having agency, whereas I cannot watch something like Saul or Hostel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't. I can't handle it at all. I mean, I yeah. think when they talk about torture porn, that is what they mean. That is mm-hmm. literally what they mean. crazy yeah. Peak isn't like that. Crimson Peak isn't like that, and I
2: really cannot wait because I know it's going to happen. Cannot wait to see how the cosplayers do the ghosts.
1: I can't wait to see the puffy sleeves.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I I can't wait to see that fandom evolve in general. There are already a hundred and eleven fan fictions on AO3 for Crimson Peak. Oh man! I bet there's. I, I, maybe of this will end up being a small but mighty fandom. You know. Mm-hmm. You know. Those there's, there's real worth in that. It's great to see that kind of evolution amongst fans.
3: I was going to mention, one of the things I kind of like about the movie, and I don't know if it's true for the book, I'd be kind of curious to see, is the ending lets you as a fan, you know, fanwank and fan fiction, anything you want about Edith's life. Do you want her to end up with Alan? That yep. ending is open. Do you want her not to end up with Alan? There was nothing in the ending that implies she did. Do you want her to travel around the world having, I don't know, lesbian love affairs? There's nothing in the movie to imply that she couldn't.
1: I like the way you think. But, like, Pacific Rim had a very similar ending in that if you wanted them to stay friends, very sentimental, emotional friends, you could. Mm-hmm. But it also seemed very likely that it turned romantic, but it didn't have to if you didn't want it to. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I like I like how Del Toro seems to leave that open once
0: again i think this is one of the, I, I joked on twitter that del toro's reasoning for this film was you know what women like let's make that movie but he does at least seem to have a very specific understanding of the ways in which women enjoy these kind of works i'd be interested the cvs actually talked about that because i'm not i don't know if he has but particularly basically... like films like i mean even like pan's labyrinth is the story of you know one girl's very specific kind of
1: journey he reached into my head and made this movie for me. And I know there are multiple people who f- also feel that way. And it's... I, I don't know how you manage that. I, I i don't know. Like, I'm fascinated when there are men who say, well, this is the kind of story I want to tell. I'm like, well, you're really awesome, but how did that happen? And I, I don't know. Yeah. So,
2: in conclusion... Go see this movie. You'll love it. Or maybe you won't. But you should go see it. If you're a horror wimp, I made it through this movie and I didn't have nightmares. So that's a good sign for you.
0: Do it for Tom Hiddleston's Ars if nothing else. Oh, the English countryside.
1: Do you know, I actually thought his ass was, like, the least interesting thing going on in that scene? Because there was a lot going on in that scene.
3: Well, there was, you know, him and Edith and then Edith's dress, which was an active participant.
2: It's true. It's true. I really thought he was going to go down on her.
3: I wonder if there's a a ratings reason.
1: I mean, I want to say Blue Valentine had to fight an NC-17, or maybe it did have an NC-17, because of an oral sex scene. So it's possible. Yeah. Mm -hmm
3: specifically oral sex being provided to a woman, right? Like that's a higher yeah. rating than a blow. Job, that's what it you, is. Yeah. You know.
1: Cause everything's awful. Yeah. Yep. I'll tell you exactly why they got an R rating specifically. It's when, um, I mean, this is speculation, but I'm 99% sure it's when Lucille says he didn't fuck the others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Use uh, the word fuck in a literal sexual use will get you an automatic R. They actually had to appeal this with bridges of Madison County Where Clint Eastwood said, come on, this is such a sweet movie. Are you really going to give it an R for just that? And he's Clint Eastwood, so he got away with it. Mm -hmm. But normally it's two non-sexual fucks, I think, before you hit an R. And then any sexual use of it, literal, he literally fucked, you know, or did or did not. Instead of just, you fucking asshole. I think that's what got it.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: I think that's what, what did it. I'm like, if you got it anyway... Make use of it.
3: Considering how Guillermo del Toro apparently talks, like you have to respect his restraint. Where, like, when to use the one fuck he's gonna get in this movie?
2: Right, right. Somehow the Martian got away with two fucks in a not sexual context.
1: That sounds about right. And also, it's Ridley Scott. So, right. (laughs) Yeah, as as Ridley Scott likes to say, he does whatever the fuck he wants. So, (laughs) that was good though, because I keep trying to get out to see it and that was good. Clearly I have priorities. I will go yeah. skip out and see Crimson Peak the day, but
2: Mhm. No, The Martian was was really good. I really enjoyed it.
3: I loved both the book and the movie and I think the movie did a good job of, you know, making things appropriate for a movie pacing and needs.
2: Yeah, and it's a movie in which science and problem solving is the hero, which I have I have hopes that that will sort of Steer the national conversation to this is why science is important. It's cool and it's important.
3: What I like about the Martian is uh, how, when they have the Council of Elrond, they have Sean Bean explain what
2: it is. <laughs> Sean Bean explains where it is, and Jeff Daniels is like, If we're the Council of Elrond, I'm Glorf and all. <laughs> all
3: right. So we've, we've wandered away from the in conclusion, but in conclusion, see Crimson Peak. Yes. And then tell us about how much you liked it. So we know that people are seeing it.
2: Yes. Thank you so much to Cleo for being here. We always love having you here. <laughs> even if our episodes then
1: go on for two and a half hours. I, yeah, that's my fault and I apologize. Uh, <laughs> did I just stopped you? No. I, I wrecked any attempt at trying to go through character by character, I think.
3: I don't think I even tried, to be honest. I, I thought of that idea. I'm like, it's not going to happen. Alright then, this has been our third anniversary. Still can't believe that. Uh, we'll see everybody back
2: next month. Absolutely. Have a good night, Bye. everybody. Bye. You guys have to say goodbye. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to Anglifes, a Made of Fail
4: production.